Thank you very much for coming on. Um, weird how we met. Uh, so, <laughs> so I went to a KPU open house because I'm about to graduate my 12th year. And I met Sam there. Sam was at one of the booths who uh, would talk about philosophy. Philosophy was your... Our department booth. Yeah. yeah. So I came up and we had a very interesting conversation. And I thought, you know, why not? Let's invite you. Let's... See how it goes, because I'm taking philosophy right now in grade 12. Okay. And I'm, I'm loving it so far. Yeah. Uh, obviously, there's no level to how deep you get into philosophy. Um, and philosophy is just one big question. So, <laughs> so lots, of, lots of little questions yeah. and some very big ones. Um, so did you, I didn't know they offered philosophy in high schools now. Um, so how does that work? Yeah, so, well, I, I'm not sure about different high schools. Yeah, yeah, but I know for yours. my high school... Um, fortunate enough to have philosophy. We have a few classes that I'd say were like out of the ordinary. Mm -hmm. So we have a uh, criminology mm -hmm. class. We have philosophy, psychology, mm -hmm. all those classes I've taken and all those classes I highly suggest. They're very, very interesting. Mm -hmm. um, they get your mind working and obviously having teachers that are really like really good at teaching the subject is also a very big bonus. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I, I highly recommend that as well. Uh, particularly philosophy, I think it should be in every high school. Uh, that would be my, I think it should be required teaching in every high school. Um, yeah. I think that would help a lot of our problems we have in society now. And mm -hmm. not just as far as preparing people for the workforce, although it does help with that as well. A lot of people might not think that, but it does. Um, but just how to be a good citizen, really. Mm -hmm. and, and how we want to structure our, getting people to think more carefully about how we want to structure our, society. Um, I, yeah, I think it's nothing but positives can come from an education if it's done right in mm -hmm. philosophy. So, so like, what are some of the stuff you guys, you guys touch on in your oh, okay. high school um, philosophy? So we've touched upon, uh, or there, there, so we come into class and it's very interesting. So the entire class is based on discussion. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of the unit, we write a paper on what we've learned and from the unit and what we've covered and what we covered in class. So it's all about discussion, taking notes. Mm -hmm. um, and I love doing that. I mean, I'm doing a podcast, so discussion is kind of my thing. Um, so we come into class and there's always a question on the board. Mm -hmm. This question is a very philosophical question. So like one of the questions we had was, are we inherently good or evil? Mm -hmm. So we come into class, uh, our teacher would give a brief summary of what he means by this question and whatever, just stuff about the question. And then in our table groups, we'd discuss, write down notes. And then after that, he'd pick on people and we'd discuss it, discuss it as a class mm -hmm. and try to, come uh, try to come to a conclusion, which in philosophy is really difficult. And I'm not sure if there are any conclusions to any of the mm -hmm. questions, because in my opinion, philosophy is just a question. Um, I don't know. I don't know it that much, but you can so correct me. I see. Okay, so that's inter It's good to know. So essentially, the teacher guides students through um, sort of what their opinion on things, these questions might be, mm -hmm. and maybe highlights areas where that might be lacking or where there might be evidence for it or not evidence for it. Do I have that right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's interesting. That's a very good, I think, teaser um, for getting into the topic. Yeah. When you study it in a university context and you start to... Um, get more deep into the theory, 
uh, you start to see like there are answers to these questions, which is great because, cool. um, okay. you know, know, but there might not necessarily be answers that everyone agrees with. Mm -hmm. um, and so this is really what we do in philosophy is we study big questions that relate to um, cross-disciplinary issues. So things that might get and often do get neglected in other domain-specific um, bastions of knowledge like if you go into criminology or you go into psychology or any of these other fields they might take for granted certain assumptions going in something like human beings have free will mm -hmm. right? this is a belief that sort of animates a lot of um, legal um, criminological psychological sociological study and a lot of that is done on the basis of a belief in free will. And some of it is done on um, the basis now, especially, that humans don't really have full free will. And there is a lot of manipulation of your will that can take place from, from other parties. Um, things like areas of study around misinformation, right, are sort of premised on this idea that, well, someone else can manipulate what you think. Mm -hmm. So you don't necessarily have the free will to generate your own thoughts exactly because someone else can use information that's false to manipulate what you think. And so they sort of that, but that in itself is an assumption, right? And so areas of study are built around these assumptions, but the actual question of is this true or not, do we have free will or not, that's not actually studied or addressed anywhere outside of philosophy. So that's where philosophy comes in to be like, okay, wait a minute. Are these fundamental assumptions made by these other disciplines even true? And a lot of the time, there's strong evidence to suggest that they're not, or they may be in a different way than most people think. And so a lot of people who go into other disciplines um, don't have a grounding in fundamental um, debates and thought experiments on really like what the nature of uh, reality is and and that's what philosophy studies primarily there's there's many different uh, subfields but you can group most of it into um, metaphysics which is the study of reality what's real in the world epistemology the study of knowledge um, what you know how you know it and questions around that and ethics which is a study of what you do about what you have and know of Right. So you sort of you need a metaphysical set of beliefs in order to have an epistemological set of beliefs. And then you need a metaphysics and an epistemology in order to have an ethical set of beliefs. Right. So I it's see. sort of like Russian nesting dolls that sit in each other because you have to first make assumptions about the way like we're sitting in a room right now. Right, like that's a metaphysical assumption that I'm making, but that could be false. We could be in the matrix or something like this, right? And if that's false, then any decision I make on the basis of us sitting in a room right now is based on false evidence and might be a bad decision on that basis, right? Conversely, you know, um, I might, you might say, well, how do you know we're sitting in a room right now? We might be dreaming, right? Yeah. I, you might be dreaming, I might be dreaming each having independent dreams of this or something mm -hmm. of that nature. And so, you know, that's another question. So it's sort of what exists and then within that, how do you know it? And then within that, what do we do about it, mm -hmm. right? Uh, so, yeah, so I'll, I'll, um, that's sort of what we, we study in philosophy. And, and as you can imagine, it captures a lot of areas of that, that get missed in other areas of study or taken for granted when perhaps they shouldn't be. Mm -hmm. So what are your thoughts on us sitting in a room right now? 
Are we or are we not? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's interesting. I would say we are. Mm -hmm. um, and that is because we, our experiences here um, correspond to reality, right? So if you want to talk about um, how we know things, and like this is a, an epistemological question, right? How we come to know things. And so there's different doctrines around that. Um, but fundamentally, like you have to look at what is our base reality and do our beliefs and our thoughts correspond to that base reality? And then there's another question of, well, how could you know that they correspond to that? That's a, that's a more complicated one to mm -hmm. answer. But presume for a moment that our experiences do correspond to our physical reality, at least in some way, maybe not perfectly, but um, they, they roughly do correspond. Well, then you can take the evidence you have from your, um, your immediate sensory perception you know, your sight, your hearing, your, all of it, mm -hmm. and you can form beliefs on the basis of that. Okay, I'm in this room because, how do I know it? Because I can see that I'm in this room, and I know that I'm having the experience of being in this room. And then the objection might be, well, you're having a dream. Well, how, how do you know you're not having a dream? And then you might say, well, because I remember waking up and going about my day in a very detailed way, and so I know I'm not having a dream. And then someone might say, well, you could have had a dream that you woke up. And, yeah, about, yeah, and, that's, yeah. and that's true, right? That's sort of this deep skepticism. This goes back to um, Descartes in um, the uh, 17th century. And it's sort of this idea that we should be skeptical of everything. And if you accept that, um, you know, it's hard to prove. A lot of people don't accept that, by the way. But if you do accept that, we should be skeptical of everything. A lot of people... Um, you know, who, who take that position, find it hard to pr prove that anything exists other than themselves. Because, and this is sort of where a lot of study in, in reality and in consciousness comes from, um, starting with Descartes. It, it goes back further than him, but um, really in the early modern period, starting with Descartes, where he talks about, and you've probably heard the maxim, I think, therefore I am. Yes. Probably yes, heard that yeah, in culture yeah. around. Um, and that comes from Descartes and, and the idea that if you're able to think, you know you exist. Because if you didn't exist, who's thinking right now? Mm -hmm. right? So the fact that you're able to think means that you exist. And even if you think you're in a room, say you were being deceived. Descartes envis envisions this, um, this demon, this evil demon has conspired to trick him about everything. So he thinks he's in a room, but he's not. Right? Mm -hmm. and, but if you're being deceived, then you exist to be deceived. Because so, something's being deceived, the thing I being see. deceived is you. So even if you're being deceived about everything, you exist. If you're not deceived about everything, you, you also still exist. So mm -hmm. there's no way to say, I do exist, and maybe I don't exist. You can't do that. It logically um, doesn't work because it's a contradiction in terms, right? And so in, in philosophy, we look a lot about um, on, I was just discussing correspondence with the world, right? And sort of if our views correspond to the world. But the other thing we look at is coherence. Um, do your views make sense? Do your beliefs go together? Or are there contradictions? Are there fallacies in reasoning mm -hmm. that you have amongst your judgments? And so that's the other way that we sort of judge whether another way that we sort of judge um, if we know something, if a belief is true, um, 
we, we compare those beliefs to other beliefs and see if they make sense together or if they contradict. So if one of my beliefs is I exist and my other belief is I don't exist, those con inherently contradict. And even the belief I don't exist presupposes that there's such a thing as an I, which is the oh. you that you're negating or attempting to negate, yeah, yeah. right? So, so even that in itself sort of proves, even the, the statement that you don't exist presupposes a, a you. Mm -hmm. So even the skeptics have to admit, okay, I exist as a per like if you're thinking, you exist, mm -hmm. you know? Now that doesn't say what you are. Right, that's a bigger, that's another more complicated question. Well, what do I mean when I say I exist? What do I mean by I? Right, that's another, that's a more complicated question. Um, but there is something called I that does exist. So there's no way to get around that. Mm -hmm. um, but a lot of people are far less skeptical and don't, you know, Descartes' approach was to doubt everything and then build doubt everything from his metaphysical picture and then build back what he could be, only what he could be certain of. But a lot of people say, no, you don't need certainty. You can build um, a foundation of metaphysics on what exists just based on good evidence. It doesn't have to be perfect evidence. It can be good. Mm -hmm. right? So you don't have to be certain. You can be pretty certain and that's good enough. Mm -hmm. right? So that's um, a less skeptical frame of, of reference. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's. I, I don't know if that helped or confused yeah. your listeners, but um, I, I mean, I, I mean, help me. Was, okay, was, it's pretty interesting. Very deep. Um, another thing we talked about in class was what makes us us, mm -hmm. um, and what makes us a person. Because I know uh, we we watched a few videos where person doesn't equal human. Okay. And human is the DNA. I'm pretty sure, and person is your mind and your soul. I see. That's what we talked about. And for, I mean, the, the, the question was, like, what makes us us or what makes us person? Um, and there's, like, three, or we broke it up into three. We broke it up to soul, body, and mind. Mm -hmm. So for those who believe we have a soul, that could be something that makes us us here right now. It could be our mind because our mind is... We talked about our mind being different from the brain mm -hmm. and how um, when we butt into the, the chocolate bar, for example, uh, you and you cut open our brain, you won't like see the flavor, mm -hmm. right? Us tasting the flavor, you don't see it. That's in our mind. That's not in our brain. You can see the chemical reactions that make us want to so, bite the chocolate or whatever. So what you're speaking about there is a distinction between um, a physical description and a subjective experience. And so the physical description is, okay, well, when X number of chocolate enters your taste uh, receptors, the signal goes from your organ to your brain, and that processes, and the, the electrons fire, or the neutrons fire, and you go from one part of the brain to another, and if you put it under an MRI, you can see what's going on in the brain that, that corresponds to this um, delightful taste of chocolate, right? That's the, f that's the physical description of what's going on. But the subjective experience is very different, right? The subjective experience is um, you taste it, and there's a, in philosophy, we call it qualia, or quali, which is there's a, there's a qualitative first-person experience to it that can't be captured by that physical description, 
right? So you can describe all of the things you want about the brain and how it works and how it functions, but nothing in that description is going to capture that subjective feeling. You need to actually have that subjective feeling in order to have it. And so this is a big, big area in philosophy of mind uh, where we, there's different accounts and, and philosophers disagree about what's actually going on there. Um, so uh, I, don't, I don't know how technical you want to get, but to give you an overview of some of the, th the theories, um, what happened in the 20th century uh, for a long time was there was these, these strands of philosophers called behavior, uh, behavioralists, logical behaviorists, and they had this idea that um, sort of what we would call subjective experience, it doesn't even exist. So your experience is just your behavior or your disposition um, to behavior. And so how I could put that in layman's terms would be like, um, when you say you feel pain, all you're saying is um, you have, you exhibit the behavior or the disposition to behavior to say, ouch, to grimace, to um, incur tissue damage, mm -hmm. things like this. So pain isn't something in itself. It's just something that describes behavior, right? And so in doing this, they sort of denied that conscious experience even exists. And this was a strand of thought. Um, you know, over the last hundred years that, that really developed and was eventually, I think, has been thoroughly rejected. Although some people, philosophers like Daniel Dennett, still hold to that view, um, and very misguidedly, in my opinion. Um, but nonetheless, um, that is sort of, that view was progressed into something a little more sophisticated called a functionalist view. And the functionalist view was that um, mental states Conscious states, they do exist, but they're, um, they're all they are, all, all you're describing when you're describing a, a mental state is the causal relationship. So what caused it and what it causes. That's all you're describing. So you say mm -hmm. a pin prick hit your arm, which caused a reaction in your body. That caused a mental state. The mental state results in you saying, ouch. That's all it is. And so they describe it solely in terms of um, as if it was a computer, right? So to a, to a functionalist, a brain is like hardware and your mental states, your conscious thoughts are like software on that hardware. Um, but it's purely in causal terms, right? Physical thing leads to mental state, which is taken to be physical in, in these accounts. And then that leads to maybe another mental state or another mental state, however long the chain is, which then leads to something else. Could be a behavior or just another mental state. And that when you track those causal relationships, you've taken a, that's all consciousness is, right? And so that sort of eliminates qualia as well, the, 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 the taste of the chocolate. Because they're saying, well, the taste of the chocolate is just the fact that the chocolate came in your mouth and then it leads to you you know, salivating and maybe smiling and mm -hmm. and being content because you had chocolate. Yeah. Right. That that that's what they would say. That's all consciousness is. That's all that's going on there. Um. And so that view was dominant as well. Um. In the you know sixties, seventies, eighties. Um. And so there's been, um. But there's been a lot of pushback to those functionalists and behaviorist views, that say no, no. There's actually something inherently there with 
when I say there, I mean inherently that exists within um, qualitative experience that isn't captured by that. There's a particular feeling of seeing the color red. There's a particular taste of chocolate. There's a particular f experience of pain that you can't capture by just talking about its causal relationships or talking about the behavior that it causes. There's something truly going on there. And I think that's where you were sort of getting at with the body and the mind description. Because when you talk about the body, including the brain, you can give this fully um, physicalist account and you can sort of say everything is causal relationships explain it in terms of the mechanisms of biology and um, biochemistry going on in the body and you can explain all of these things going on and in the brain but it doesn't actually tell you what that feeling of, of red is or that feeling of warmth or that feeling of of pain right um there's a popular philosopher um there's a popular philosopher named Sam Harris who has a podcast. It's quite good for um, people who are interested in some of these topics. And he has this analogy. I think he borrows it actually from a passage that John Locke wrote, the philosopher John Locke wrote um, centuries ago. But there's, uh, he says, you know, to people who deny that conscious experience exists or that it's just, um, it's just a cause of other behaviors or mental states, you know, put your hand on a hot stove and tell me that that experience doesn't exist and it's just a cause of something else, right? It's very clearly wrong. There very clearly is something that exists there. And it's, it's not just this. But this is, again, one of these examples where you can look at disciplines um, and philosophy isn't even immune, where there's sort of dogma that creeps in, right? A certain viewpoint is accepted and propagated. And then, you know, especially you get into some of these areas of psychology and elsewhere where people go, no, consciousness doesn't exist, it's just behaviors, it's just mechanisms, and, you know, so it's like obviously wrong, but a lot of people in these very um, well, supposedly well-educated, well-thought-out, well-endowed uh, financially uh, fields totally miss this, totally miss, to like, fundamental aspects of human nature. And so it's up to philosophers to come back and say, you know, no. And, and I think, you know, one of the most famous papers in philosophy was Thomas Nagel's, uh, What Is It Like to Be a Bat? And in that paper, it's a very interesting um, paper, and it's not too long. If anyone's interested in this type of stuff, I encourage them to look it up and read it. Mm -hmm. um, essentially what he says is, you know, there is something that it's consciousness just means like there's something that it's like to be you. You have a qualitative experience. There is something that it's like to be you. Mm -hmm. And it's tough to really pin down what that is all the time, but there's something there. And it can't be captured just by talking about the neurons in your brain firing. You could, you could describe everything perfectly of the neurons in your brain firing, and you would, you would miss the experience of red. Right? And so, mm. um, yeah, you, you understand yeah, yeah, what yeah. I mean? You could, yeah. you could track all of that perfectly in the brain. You would, that would still not give you the experience of red. Mm. So each person's consciousness is completely different from one another, and that's what gives us the different experiences? Well, it could be. They might, the conscious experience of the qualia of red to you might be different than it is to me. And I think actually there's some scientific evidence to support that. Um, but it might be the same. But whether it's different or the same, 
it's there. That's sort of what it comes down to, right? So um, there's a, a, another philosopher um, named Jackson who wrote a paper um, called um, Epiphenomenal Qualia. And that paper outlines some thought experiments. And one of the thought experiments is um, this, this um, woman named Mary is this is you know a thought experiment he came up with so say there's a woman named mary who's uh lives in this room through whatever reason she's forced to live in this room and she's a genius but um this is a black and white room she's got black and white um lenses on she can only mm -hmm. see black and white um but she's a genius with the the science of of vision and color and so through a black and white tv with black and white books and everything she learns everything there is to know about physics, so you can imagine this is a completed physics, and not just everything we currently know, but everything there is to know. So we've perfected physics, and we've perfected biology, and mm -hmm. we've perfected, this could be however many years in the future, who knows? We've perfected all of these areas of discipline. But the experience All these discipline. And she learns everything about what the experience of the color red is like, all through black and white. Yeah. So by virtue of that, if the sort of physicalist story is true, um, this is this is Jackson's point. If the physicalist story is true that it's just neurons in your brain firing, then by virtue of knowing all of this through black and through a black and white medium, she should know everything about the color red. Yeah. But then suppose she goes out into the world, takes the lenses off, and sees the color red for the first time. Will she then know something new? Because if she knows something new after seeing that, that tells you there's something wrong with the physicalist picture, mm -hmm. right? So that's a, another thought experiment. Um, you know, uh, one counter to that is uh, people called mind-brain identity theorists, and they think that, um, well, the, the neurons firing in the brain and the qualitative experience of red she's having are the same thing. They're just two perspectives on the same thing, um, okay. like two sides of the same coin. Okay, okay. But um, there's problems with that view as well. I won't get too much into the weeds, but that's... that's um, if you're interested in philosophy of mind and these kinds of topics, um, you know, this is one of those things that um, doesn't get touched in really any other uh, discipline and, and maybe a little bit in psychology, but even there, like it go, people go in with assumptions, often physicalist assumptions, because scientists start with this opinion that, well, they can track everything. And if we can't track it, it means we just don't have the sophisticated equipment, equipment sophisticated enough yet to do mm -hmm. it. Yeah. But in the future, we will be able to. And in the future, we can know these things. But that in itself is an assumption. That's yeah. not, you can't take that for granted. Yeah. So a philosopher's job is to come in and say, well, yeah, okay, this is what they think they know in science. This is what the scientists tell you. But what assumptions are the, is that built on? And do, all, do you want to actually grant all of those assumptions? And sometimes the answer is yes. Other times, not so much. So when people say, oh, well, it's science. Well, first of all, that presumes that it's good science. And, and there's a whole, as we've seen, you know, in the last few years, especially, there's all kinds of problems with um, science being done and, and sort of viewed as a final product instead of a process. But um, secondly, well, what kind of, what kind of um, assumptions went into that science? Right? And 
do you believe in those and do you think we should grant all of those or should we maybe uh, remain skeptical in some areas? And so that's part of a philosopher, very small part, but that's a part of a philosopher's job is to think about things like this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, without getting too, too controversial, one thing I'll say is like if you look at COVID, mm-hmm. um, a lot of what came out in, during COVID was people saying and sometimes very prestigious um, people with very prestigious titles and, and very well-paying jobs that are supposed to be leaders in their fields came out and said, you know, oh, well, the science tells us we should do this. As a philosopher, that immediately raises red flags because science does not, and, I, and maybe I should clarify this a bit, but science actually cannot tell you what to do. It can't. What do you mean by that? Well... Explain a bit further. Science covers what is in the world, what exists, right? Um, So in the context of COVID, like what does COVID exist? What's the virus? What's the transmissibility rate? What's the um, lethality of the virus? If we institute XYZ measures, how might that stop the virus or not stop the virus? These are the kinds of questions that science answers. They're empirical questions that you have to go out and test in the world. They're falsifiable. If science is done right, they're falsifiable, which means they can be proven wrong. Mm-hmm. They're not just assumptions that can't be proven wrong. Um, like oh, like uh, the idea God exists, right? That's not a scientific claim. You can't test that. Yeah. There's no way to go test if God exists, mm-hmm. right? So, but if you say, um, well, the ocean exists, well, that is a testable claim. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. So that's what I mean by falsifiability. Mm-hmm. Um, so science is interested in, and if it's done properly, is interested in questions of what is. And questions of what is are different than questions of what we ought to do, right? So there's a distinction we would call in philosophy between descriptive and normative claims, right? So descriptive claims describe the world as it is. Normative claims describe what we should do or what we ought to do, right? So there's a distinction between is and ought there. Um, One is just talking about the facts, the facts, and the other is adding in an opinion or an, an imperative that says we should do this, right? So I'll put it to you this way. Science can tell you um, that a storm is coming. But science can't tell you whether you should close your windows or whether you should go outside and stand in it because you like the rain. Right? Mm-hmm. So. It's about what is. It doesn't tell you what ought, what you should do. Maybe you hate the rain. You don't want to get wet. Well, then you would close your windows. But maybe Uh you like the rain and you want to get wet and you want to go and live out in the storm because you find that fun and exhilarating. Well, then you should go walk outside and stand in the storm. Uh Science can't answer that question for you. That's a question of values. Okay. And so when people say, well, the science says we should do this, that's impossible. What they mean to say is, the science says this is true, X, Y, Z is true. Add in, often under the table, unacknowledged, add in my values that I don't want you to question. The science says, that, oh, the science says that. No, 
the science only gave me a descriptive claim. You added your values in there because you didn't want to debate them whether they should be held or not. Mm -hmm. And then you used the objective cover of science to say the science says this. The science says we should lock down, we shouldn't lock down, whatever the case, right? So if you talk about we should or we shouldn't lock down, all science can do is tell you, and often it can't even tell you because there's limits on what it can, can study into the future, mm -hmm. but all science could tell you is like, okay, if we don't lock down, we project this happening. If we do lock down, we project this happening, right? It can give you an idea of what will happen, but yeah. the decision about whether to do it or not, that is a normative decision. That is about values, right? Someone who's all about safety will take that, so you have the exact same set of facts. Say COVID will kill, I'll just pick a number, five people, mm -hmm. right? So in a given area, you say, if we do lock down, we'll have, say, one death. If we don't lock down, we'll have five deaths, mm -hmm. right? That doesn't tell you whether you should lock down or not. All that tells you is a projection, which isn't certain, of how many people will die. So someone who's all about safety might say, oh, well, of course we should lock down. We know that five people are gonna die, likely, mm -hmm. if we don't lock down. Someone else who's all about freedom of movement might say, well, no, we shouldn't, because yes, five people die, but there's, uh, there's more important ethical concerns in the world than just maximizing our own safety. There's things that are inherently good, like freedom, and, and we live in a society of a million people, you know, um, 100 people die every day, why should we stop? Why should we shut down? Give, why should we end our sacrosanct um, uh, notions of freedom for the benefit of five people when 100 people die every day, we don't even blink? So someone else might have to say mm -hmm. that view, right? That decision has to be litigated, and by litigated I just mean um, has to be discussed and determined through ethics and through, in a practical sense, through politics and through the... Um, conflict of different ideas and different values mm -hmm. but science doesn't answer that question and it can't answer that question that is an area of philosophy and other disciplines as well to an extent but that it's a it's a normative question not a descriptive question in order for that to be correct and the decision to be correct between the government wouldn't it have to take everybody's thoughts on it and then so that decision would be more Mm, how can I call it? Ethically correct? Would that be a... In a democracy, that's generally how we think. But notice that in itself is an assumption. The idea that you would have to take everyone's opinion is an assumption. We take that for granted in a democracy. But someone in a, in a theocracy or in a dictatorship of another stripe would say, why would I take everyone's opinion? Those people don't know anything. Mm. I am the wise one. Right? And a lot of these people in government positions, unfortunately, um, and this is my view, take a less radical but um, a similar approach. And they go, well, we are the experts. People should listen to experts. And it's like, okay, first of all, experts in what? Experts in descriptive science or experts in values, normative values? Because generally these people in science aren't experts on values. The people who are experts on values are professional ethicists in philosophy. But even those people generally don't say, well, I'm an expert in values, listen to me. They understand that everyone has their own set of values, good or bad, supported or not. But these things have to be in a free society that values everyone equally, which again is an assumption, but in a free society that values everyone equally, 
um, everyone's input on their own values and how those should be weighted in public decisions should be brought into an account, right? So there should be, in a democratic society, there should be a deeply democratic system where people, you know, whether through representatives or not, or whether directly, people have a say in these types of value um, judgments that go on during COVID and other, anything, war, any other topic you want to pick, right? Mm -hmm. And so that in itself, um, that in itself really, I think, speaks to where we've come as a society, you know, in the last few hundred years where everyone now, supposedly, everyone's voice is valued. But you look at some of the people in charge, especially some of the people in very um, prestigious uh, positions in, in authority, and they seem to think, well, I know the most, so I'm going to set the rules that everyone can follow. Well, okay, you might know the most about a certain area factually, in a factual sense, but the, in the sense of values, A, you don't know, you don't know, you know the most, and B, even if you did know the most, it's not clear that that would mean that your opinion matters more than someone else, right? So that in itself is another assumption that would be made, need to be made to support that, right? So, um, you know, there's a lot of problems with our COVID response and the response everywhere in the world, I think, that didn't center it um, around democratic discussion and debate. And um, at a lot of our institutions that you know, um, maybe made the right choice, maybe made the wrong choice, depending on how you view it, but um, didn't actually undertake the process of engaging in, in you know, uh, the classical period that would have said the demos, the people. Mm -hmm. The demos of the democracy are the people, mm -hmm. right? We're not consulted for the most part. So if, 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 if the government was to do that, how would that look like? Well, that, yeah, now no, that's a practical problem for politics, right? So, like, should that be... Um, by a referendum, maybe, or through um, an election, mm -hmm. or um, maybe that should be through some sort of government-led system to solicit response or solicit opinion from the public, um, which then representatives go and implement. Um, so there's different questions around it, but there's different ways of doing it more or less democratically. Um, very legitimate questions, how that would even work. But if you notice what happened here, and I'll speak to just BC, mm -hmm. um, the, the leader of the province, John Horgan, during COVID, he not only did, did that process that I just described not happen, but he, as the elected representative, so, and, and his government, really, which are supposed to represent the people, um, and it's the people's voice. They are the people's voice. This is how the system's supposed to work. He said... Well, I'm not going to take responsibility for these decisions. I'm, we will do whatever Dr. Bonnie Henry, the chief medical officer, says. And a lot of people thought that was great. They go, oh, of course, you listen to the experts. But the problem is, is that no one elected Dr. Bonnie Henry to make these decisions. People elected the politicians of the provincial legislature. Right? This happened across the country and across the world, really, where these bureaucrats were given huge amounts of control over how society functioned. But no one elected these people. These people are scientists slash bureaucrats who have their own biases and assumptions that they take into these decisions, um, which is evidenced by the fact that some made radically different decisions than others. Mm 
Mm -hmm. um, if you look at BC versus if you look at Florida or something like that, yeah. massively different decisions um, with the same virus and, and largely, in many cases, largely the same situation on the ground. Mm -hmm. Well, why were there massively different decisions? Well, I feel like because every, um, every person in charge has different values that they value more than other people exactly. and how they were brought up. Yeah. So for example, if this person was brought up in a wealthy, um, wealthy family and this person wasn't, they'd have completely different views on life, values, Potentially. et cetera. Yeah. So. yeah, or like say one person has family who is at high risk, but now yeah. they're in charge of a whole country or a whole state or province. They gotta do what's right for that state, but they might have a deep conflict of interest just personally, right? So there's yeah. all these kind of questions. Um, and, and that's why really, and I mean that sort of conflict of interest might exist for anyone. I, I wouldn't single out provincial health officers for that. But that being said, the people's voice is what's supposed to make the decisions in a democracy. And the leader of the people's voice, the elected leader said, no, no, we're not gonna make those decisions. We're gonna give them to someone else, an unelected person. And to me, that is a dereliction of duty, you know, and, and as much as I liked John Horgan, and I do like him as a person, um, I met him, um, he is, um, you know, he's a good guy, I think, but I don't agree with, and it's not just him, it was premiers across the country. I don't think that was an appropriate response from a democratic standpoint. Um, that was that tarnished our democracy in Canada for sure, absolutely, and and it's because no one, whether it was largely media or um, other media, government, um, anyone with a public, most people with a public platform, not many people knew, or if they did know, were honest about um, the difference between normative and descriptive claims in science, right? And this idea that, oh, the science will tell us what to do. Well, no, science can't tell us what to do. It's, it's, not, it's not fit for that purpose. Mm -hmm. It's fit for telling us what is in the world or projecting to us what might be if we choose this course. But it's not there to tell us we should choose this course, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think a lot of the people who made these decisions would say, well, obviously, like, we, we should save the maximum amount of people. That's an obvious choice. Mm -hmm. that, that doesn't need to be debated. Well, what's the threat profile, though? Like, if we should be saving the maximum amount of people, there's an argument, if you take that argument to its fullest extent, there's an argument that we shouldn't do, we shouldn't allow people who want to go paragliding, we shouldn't allow snorkeling, we shouldn't allow anything with an element of danger, maybe we shouldn't even allow people to drive. Anything with an element of danger maybe shouldn't be allowed if, if our concern is saving the most amount of people. But of course we have other concerns, right, that yeah. override that, and so that's where the debate needs to happen. And so there wasn't a lot of honest engagement in that type of debate during this period, and that led to very unilateral decisions being made. And, um, you know, to, as far as I see it anyway, um, you know, those decisions might have been right, they might have been wrong. It really depends on your perspective. Yeah. But either way, whether they were right or wrong, the way they were reached was not democratic. That's an issue. I think that's a big lesson we should be taking for the next pandemic or emergency or whatever, mm -hmm. you know, or, yeah. or who knows what.
how could we how could we fix that? Ooh, like if you were if 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 you were if we all elected you <laughs> and yeah. you were the director, yeah. um, how would how would you make that decision? How would you move through with that decision? Well. Fundamentally, I think there's, so there's a few issues. One issue is um, the one I was just mentioning about democratic representation. I think that's solved pretty easily. That's just keeping power in the hands of the people who are supposed to make the decisions, mm -hmm. the elected representatives. Yeah. Um, however, maybe we could have, certainly, you know, in the beginning, it would have been up to the government, but maybe, you know, six months, a year in, there might have been something like a referendum to say, hey, do the people actually want lockdowns or mask mandates or whatever, vaccine passports or whatever the, the um, issue is? These are like really contentious issues. Like there might have been some more direct, represent, um, direct democracy there. Might have been a better idea, um, mm -hmm. potentially. Uh, then there's the other issue is more like are there fundamental freedoms that shouldn't be restricted even by elected representatives, right? And this is where you get into like constitution, um, like the US constitution, this conversation comes up around along uh, those lines a lot. And also our Canadian Charter of Freedoms and Rights comes up along that as well. Um, and so it's a really, it's an interesting question about like whether certain rights should be inalienable and the government shouldn't be able to touch them regardless. Um, there's different ethical theories on that, and or I, sh I should say, there's there within the different ethical theories, there's different conclusions reached about that. Um, so I don't know. In your class, did they talk a bit about like utilitarianism versus deontology or anything like that? Uh, no, I've heard those words mentioned a few times in our class, but we haven't discussed them. So, like a utilitarian will look at the projected outcomes. And we'll say, what's the best, what causes the greatest happiness for the greatest number of people? And we'll make that mm -hmm. decision on the basis of that, right? Um, that's, a, that's one way to do it. But when you do that, in certain cases, it makes sense to trample people's rights. Because you can cause the greatest number of happiness, the greatest amount of happiness in the greatest number by trampling people's rights in certain cases. Um, and so a utilitarian has to sort of swallow that bullet and, and bite the bullet and, and say, yep, we will trample this person's rights because it's the best for everyone in the long run. It's the so-called greater good. Mm -hmm. um, a deontologist, which this is the ethical theory that comes from um, Immanuel Kant, uh, goes all the way back and essentially talks about individuals as an end in themselves and never a means to an end. So you know when someone says, um, like, okay, well, I'm just using that as a means to an end, right? It's a, it's a thing like, um, you know, getting my driver's license just so that I can, you know, drive myself to parties or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. So you're not getting the driver's license f for the license. You're getting it for the things okay. that it can do for yeah, you and that that how sense. you can use it, right? Mm -hmm. um, so what Kant says is every person is an end in themselves. You, you should never, if you're ethical, you should never be able to use someone as a means to an end. So if you 
if we're talking mm-hmm. and I'm thinking, I want to talk to this guy and get him to like me so that I can ask him to borrow $5. Mm-hmm. And he'll, if he likes me, he'll let me borrow his $5. And it's I a see. benefit to me. Yeah. So I'm not actually viewing you as an end in yourself. I'm just viewing you as a means to that $5. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So Kant would say you can never use someone, an individual, a, a human, a, a being. You would never use them as a means to an end. You would simply see them as an end in themselves. If I'm talking to you, it's because I'm interested in you. And, you know, it's all about, um, like, you you are seen as a person in your own right and not as a tool for something else. And the utilitarians don't see it that way. The utilitarians say, no, you're a tool. You're a tool for the greater good. Mm-hmm. We will quash your rights to get to the greater good. And that's it. And Kant says, no, no, no. There, this greater good... You talk, no, that that's not a, that doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. That's a fool's errand. You never lie to a person. You never treat them as a means to an end. You never do any of that. You stick to a rule of treating them as an end in themselves. Always, no exceptions. So, and in that case, you have to um, you have to make decisions where you know maybe there's really bad outcomes that come for large numbers of people. Because you refuse to step on like one person's rights. And Kant would say, so be it. That's, you did the right thing. You don't, as a moral agent, you don't go and step on someone else's rights ever. Doesn't matter what the consequences are. So mm-hmm. someone might say, imagine someone's taken hostage. And they say, if, if, um, um, if you don't, um, they might say, well, if you... If you kill the hostage, um, you will prevent like a bomb, a nuclear bomb going off and killing millions of people. Yeah. Utilitarian would say, I'm sorry, we don't want, we have to think about the greatest happiness or the greatest number. Unfortunately, that means we got to shoot you. We have to kill you. Yeah. Kant and deontologists would say, it doesn't matter what's going to happen. You don't kill someone. You don't use someone as a means to an end. Mm-hmm. as a moral agent, right? And so those are two different ethical views that um, really cut against each other in some fundamental ways. And there's other ethical views as well. Those are, those are just two of the major ones. And depending on what you believe in and what you subscribe to, you will come to a radically different opinion on an outcome. Here's another example. Um, this, is a, this is another one from the literature. Um, uh, so suppose there is a... Um, Suppose there is um, a majority population with some sort of minority ethnic population mm-hmm. within it, and they are you know, marginalized and mistreated by the majority population. Mm-hmm. Well, then you have, a, um, say, an individual, maybe like a, a police officer or could just be a citizen, um, who is accused of murdering a member of the minority population, and there's huge protests and the riots are about to break out. And so this person's charged with this crime. And everyone's at the courthouse there waiting for this verdict, right? And so um, you can say you could know what was going to happen and because based on the sides of the crowd, the types of agitators that are in the crowd, the types of violence that has already happened um, in, in the crowd, 
say you could have a pretty good estimation that if the verdict came back not guilty, this crowd was going to riot, and somewhere between five and ten people were going to die just in fires or whatever mm -hmm. going on. So you know that if the verdict's not guilty, five to ten innocent people are going to be caught in fires by, from this riot and die. Yeah. Well, a utilitarian would then be very tempted to say, look, it doesn't matter if you're guilty or innocent. we got to convict you. Because if we don't convict you, five people are going to, five to ten people are going to die. So a utilitarian might say, fair trial, forget that, guilty. This guy could be totally innocent. Say he is innocent. Even if the utilitarian knew he was innocent, yeah. would still say, sorry, he sacrificed for the greater good. The deontologist would say, no, no, no. He has a right to a fair trial. You can't use him to try to save those other people. It doesn't work like that. That's immoral because he's an end in himself, not a means to an end. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so that's some of the debates we'd have in ethics. What if, <coughs> what if, what if that civilian uh, who is being charged, mm -hmm. he or she, they know that once they, if, if, if they're charged not guilty, they come out of the courthouse, they're going to have threats uh, on their life. They'd have to move out, get off the grid, mm -hmm. or they might, you know, end up committing suicide or whatever mm -hmm. if it's that big of a, a, uh, a issue. Mm -hmm. um, what would, 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 would both sides still think the same? Yes, well, I think then um, in relation to what? In relation to getting a fair trial? In relation to the utilitarian, how do you pronounce the word? Utilitarian? Yeah. And the, the deontological yeah. view. So like the utilitarian would say, would still say like, you know, basically he needs to be convicted so that these five people don't die. Um, and then they might actually say, and if he was going to, if we knew he was going to kill himself after, maybe it's better that he's convicted anyway, because then he's in jail and he can't kill himself. They might say it's even, it's an added benefit. Um, that's an interesting argument they might make. Um, a deontologist would say, um, no, he still deserves a fair trial. Even if the outcome of that will be negative for him, we treat him as an end in himself. And if he does wind up killing himself down the road, you know, that's a consequence of other immoral actions done where people are pursuing him when they shouldn't be and all kinds of other things that we're using him as a means to an end when they shouldn't be. Even if all of those things do take place down the road, our decision here in this moment to give him a, free tri uh, a fair trial or not needs to be moral. Mm -hmm. And if all of those other people are moral, they will all make individual moral decisions all every step along the way. But even if they don't, that's not our... There's nothing we can do about that. We can only make moral decisions for us and the moral decision is never use a person as a means to an end. Mm -hmm. I remember in criminology class, we watched a movie. I think it's called Eye in the Sky, I mm -hmm. want to say. And it's this movie about um, in, uh, where was it? I want to say Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. uh, there, there were, in this one building, uh, terrorists that were preparing themselves. Yeah. Uh, bomb suits, whatever, right? Mm -hmm. um, and the it was it was it was them against the u.s and the u.s was saying 
like we have to you know we have to we have to kill them mm -hmm. because we don't like under circumstances that we are under right now we can't go in there take the bombs away or whatever mm -hmm. so we will have to like shoot up the house that they're in right now and mm -hmm. they're preparing to go and you know kill a bunch of people um and then as 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 they're flying their drone with the what do you call them bomb drones or mm -hmm. right uh so they're flying that prepared to press the button to fire uh, there's a little girl that comes up to mm -hmm. the house mm -hmm. who is just selling bread for their family. And mm -hmm. in the beginning, uh, the audience who are watching the movie get a really close connection with that girl. Mm -hmm. uh, we show her, like, the movie would show her life and how poor it is and, you know, make everybody feel bad for her. Mm -hmm. And then there's that decision. The person in the drone, yeah. he, he could see that there's a girl. Yeah. And he has to make that decision. Yeah. People telling him do it. People telling him not do it. And he has to make that decision. Yeah. And, you know, if I was ever put in that situation, I don't know what, I, what I'm... See, a utilitarian do. would pull the trigger. Yeah. And a deontologist wouldn't. Right? And so that's where these debates really... Like, the rubber hits the road, right? When you talk about applying philosophy to real life and where this comes from, that's exactly it. It's like, how do we want to structure our military rules of engagement, right? And so that would be really something to consider, Absolutely. And, and, you know, what, to what extent, what theory and what values do we want to base our institutions on, like the military? How do we structure, do you know how we structure our military? Yeah, because um, I have, um, I actually um, served in the military for a number of years. Oh. Yeah, and I'm in the reserves um, currently, actually. And so, um, basically, we have uh, laws of armed conflict, international laws of armed conflict that Canada um, follows and so we follow all international laws which have prescriptions on rules of engagement and things like that when you can engage and when you can't um, and so uh, I don't know what the tolerance would be specifically for collateral damage in a case like that specifically mm -hmm. but I do know um, generally that you is a very very strong impetus put on not harming civilians not, and any non-combatant and you have to be essentially certain that you're under threat or another person is under um, lethal threat before you can engage with lethal force. Mm -hmm. So there, we do have a sort of um, deontological um, underpinning to a lot of that. And if you look in a lot of our laws based on rights, a lot of that comes from a deontological worldview. But there's other things, there's other areas where it's based very, it's a very utilitarian idea where, you know, the law is based on um, this idea of what's best for everyone. And, you know, even if it's not great for some people, um, it's best for the whole. So we can sort of, you know, you might get the short end of the straw, but it's better for everyone, right? There's some areas of law that are based on that as well. So in a legal sense, it's not as if, because different laws emerge at different times in different eras, and some stay and some go and there's reform. And so it's not entirely coherent. Um, from a legal standpoint, but of course as an ethicist, you know, that doesn't constrain you. As a lawyer, that might constrain you, but as an ethicist, you would go, well, just because the law says something doesn't mean it's right, right? The mm -hmm. law can be wrong, and in fact, Israel, most eth ethicists think that a lot of laws are wrong. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, that's sort of, they would view what's right as... Um, a process of you'd have to discover what's right through sort of ethical thought and argumentation and you would base premise you would formulate arguments on based on premises 
And if the premises were true and the argument is structured right, um, that would lead you to the correct ethical views. Um, do you talk about logic much in the philosophy class, you? I mean, we've just, school started a month ago. Yeah, um, yeah. So we've only gone through our first unit, which was personal identity. Mm -hmm. um, and now we're just starting our second unit on justice and mm -hmm. injustice and what, and what we think. And, uh, but no we, haven't, no, we haven't gone through logic yet, but I, I won't be surprised if we do. So logic's a really interesting thing, and I wanted to talk about this in our interview because um, logic is this fantastic tool that is part of, um, I guess, a larger suite of capabilities, human capabilities, and, and I guess you could call them beliefs as well, um, around rationality, right? And this idea that, you know, um, a human is a rational animal, animal as Aristotle said. And that sort of really is the basis of civilization in many ways. And it's the basis of all of these discussions, right? That we can figure these things out through argumentation and figure out what's right and what's wrong and what's true and what's false. Um, and so when, I, when we talk about logic and we talk about rationality, um, there's a really great book that um, Steven Pinker, a psychologist at Harvard, wrote um, recently called um, Rationality. Uh, and that book, and you know others like it. There's there's um, a few others as well that I w could recommend. But essentially, the views exp um, espoused in in that book, and that I would agree to myself, center around um, really privileging rationality in our public life, but also in our internal life and how we structure um, our beliefs and how we go about our lives really there's no there's no um i was going to say reason but that's an appeal to rationality there's no uh basis in my opinion for structuring a life that's not rational right and i think most people agree with that i think most people try to structure their life rationally um they just might be doing it poorly and so when you see mm -hmm. people who have um, when you see, generally this is true, when you see people who, I think, when you see people who have made bad decisions or have gone down the wrong path, it's not that they're trying to make bad decisions. It's not that they're trying to do the wrong thing. And it's also not that they're just pulling ideas out of a hat and going and doing that randomly. They have reasons. It's just their reasons aren't very good, or maybe their reasons are not tied to the anticipated conclusion in a logical way, right? And so when we study logic and we teach logic and philosophy, it's about how to connect what we call premises to conclusions. And so the premises is basically the evidence that you form your belief on, you form your conclusion on, so you say, okay, well, I know that I know that you have a computer in front of you, and I can see that it has the Apple logo on it. So a reasonable belief I could come to is that you like Apple products. Mm -hmm. That's a reasonable belief, and it comes from what in that statement the premises are. Well, I'm seeing you with an Apple product. I'm seeing you with a computer, and. The other premise is I can see that that computer's Apple. 
Um, the implicit premise, which often wouldn't be stated, but if you really look at it carefully, you see the implicit premise is you only own things that you like or you're more likely to own products, technology products that you like. And you take those three things together, you can come to a conclusion, which is you like Apple products. Mm -hmm. Because you would only have the product if you liked it. You do have a product here, and it is Apple. Therefore, you like Apple products. That's a reasonable assumption to make. Um, it's not a deductive argument, but um, I won't get into the weeds on that. But essentially, the... Um, the idea in logic is we want to look at how beliefs are formed and what evidence they're formed on. And there's two questions. One, is the evidence good? Two, does the evidence necessitate the conclusion or give um, connect to the conclusion in a logical way? So someone might say like... Um, Someone might say, like, um, I saw, um, I'll just pull out random examples. Someone might say, like, I saw Superman in Vancouver. Mm. And so, say you're there, and you're watching this Superman with him, and you're in Vancouver. And someone goes, you know, I saw Superman in Vancouver, therefore, Batman is in Surrey. Mm -hmm. Well, you, is that premise true? Yes. Because you're there, you see Superman's in Vancouver. But how do you get to Batman in Surrey? Mm -hmm. You have no evidence for that. They just pulled that out of their ass. Now, notice that that doesn't mean Batman's not in Surrey. He could be. Mm -hmm. But you don't know. You have no reason to believe yeah. that, right? And so that is, looking at that, um, that would be um, a bad argument. And looking at that, as a, and identifying that as an illogical argument would be um, would be a, something we would do in logic. And uh, so maybe as a good argument, is a, you might want to say, well, I see Superman. Superman's in Vancouver. Therefore, Clark Kent is also in Vancouver. It's like, okay, well, you know Clark Kent and Superman are the same guy, so that is a logical argument. Hmm. Superman's here. Therefore, you know Clark Kent's also here because it's the same, same dude. So that would be a logical argument, right? It, the premises are connected to the conclusion because you know Superman's in Vancouver, you know Clark Kent and Superman are the same person, therefore Clark Kent is in Vancouver because wherever Superman is, Clark Kent also has to be, right? That would be a logical argument, right? And so when we study logic, we look at um, do things make sense? Do things, do conclusions come from their premises? Are they necessitated by them? And so um, we were talking about business earlier. Yeah. And that's a really interesting, that's a really useful tool in business. Because when you go into business, a lot of people have a lot of beliefs. A lot of people have a lot of thoughts and ideas and biases. That doesn't make them true. And so having the tools to think and to realize, okay, this is, a, this is an invalid argument. Okay, this is a valid argument, but it's unsound. The, this argument, the um, premises, it's a, it's a valid argument. It looks good, but I don't think the premise is true, right? But in this argument, all oh, the premise is true, but it doesn't lead to the conclusion. Right? So someone, you might go into business and someone might say, say you're starting up a new business with a partner. Someone might say, 
we need to invest 75% of our uh, net profits into, we need to reinvest that into digital marketing because the only way to grow is through digital marketing. And so a lot of people might say, uh, who, who aren't trained in logic, might just accept that and go, oh, well, I mean, that sounds pretty good. Digital marketing does lead to more sales, theoretically. And, you know, it's, it's a nice story, right? It sounds good. Mm-hmm. And this happens frequently, where things sound nice. And so a lot of people might be tempted to just agree. But um, someone trained in logic will say, well, wait a minute. Will putting that money into digital marketing really improve sales? For sure? Well, no. Of course not for sure. Maybe it won't. Maybe it's not successful. Then, second point, what other things could we put in that money into that would improve sales? Third point, do we want to even focus on improving sales right now? Maybe we need to do something else. Maybe we need to put money into infrastructure to um, fortify something on the back end of the business that doesn't improve sales but is critical, mm-hmm. right, to our employee quality of life or to our business being able to function properly or what have you, right? So th- there's all these levels of things where, yeah, it's a nice story. Oh, we have to put our money into that because it'll improve sales. Well, that doesn't mean that it will. It doesn't talk about, it doesn't necessitate that you'd, first of all, it doesn't mean that it would improve sales if you did put that money in. Second of all, it doesn't talk about what else you could put that money in that improves sales. Mm-hmm. And third, it doesn't talk about whether you should even be improving sales or if there's other more important things to address first. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so this is like, and what I just did there is a systematic breakdown of an argument, of that, you know, the, the statement, the proposition being, oh, we need to do X so that we get Y. We need to increase digital marketing so that we improve sales. I broke that argument down and I explained the flaws of it. That is something you are trained to do through academic philosophy, through the teaching of logic. A lot of people don't know how to do that. And so maybe they might hit upon one of, like throwing darts at a dartboard. They might hit upon one of the objections I just raised randomly because they thought of it, because they have an intuition and it came up. And they think, okay, you know, wait a minute. What about, um, what about um, cold calling? What about um, traditional marketing? What about billboards? What about, you know, like they might, what about, um, you know, not doing marketing, right? So they might hit on these things randomly because they have some experience in the area or because they're um, just intuitively sense that the guy, whoever said that is, um, you know, speaking um, more confidently than he should be. But they won't necessarily catch that every single time in the same way that someone trained in this will. Right? So when you have this, a lot of people say, why take philosophy? It's useless. You're going to work as a barista at Starbucks. It doesn't train you for a job. It trains you for every job. It trains you better than any single domain-specific set of knowledge for every job because it teaches you how to think. It teaches you how to break down claims and break down propositions between the claim, the connection between the claim of the premise and the claim of the... Um, conclusion, if that claim is true, if it's connected adequately to the conclusion, 
what the relationship between those two things are and if it makes sense and if it is logically coherent. And so that technique is super powerful. That technique, you can imagine how that could be applied. Well, you can essentially use that to break down any argument or claim. This is why a lot of lawyers have a background in philosophy, because you can use that to break down any claim or argument about anything and determine if that actually makes sense. Or maybe there's a weakness in that argument somewhere. And you're going to find it because you can recognize the different parts of arguments and know how things work together and how things mm -hmm. don't work together. Mm -hmm. Right? And yeah. And you yourself, you use philosophy in your own business? I do. If you'd like to explain a bit about what you and your partners in this business do and yeah. what it is. So I'm the vice president of compliance for um, a venture bio firm called Maker Capital. Um, I can give you our website so you can post that along with that if sure. you, want, yeah, yeah. you want, and then people can check it out if they want to see. But essentially, um, we went into this to bridge the gap between uh, buyout and venture capital, traditional venture capital. And so um, the business really, at the end of the day, is, um, and I think this applies to any business, but especially in, in financials, anything in financial markets, um, or working with, uh, working with numbers and the idea of uh, the ideas that underpin um, financial strategy, it really helps to have a basis in in formal and informal logic, and know what you're doing when you're making decisions. So, for example, um, you know myself and. Um, and uh, the other the other principles of the company often will discuss potential decisions that we're going to we're discussing, um, say acquiring a company or moving from one industry to another or doing potential things, right? And so we've um, uh, we acquired our first company in in January of this year, and so as a software business, and then we've uh, spun out another business which is a, a digital marketing and design uh, agency. As well, so we we operate, um, we operate or assist in the operation of uh, both of those businesses, and when we talk about not only are those two businesses but other businesses that we are we look we're looking at acquiring or other industries we're thinking about moving into, there's a lot of talk about okay, well let's let's make this change, let's move into this industry because of this because of. Um, okay, there's there's secular tailwinds in this market. Mm -hmm. There is um, a strong consumer demand, or there's a there's an easily identifiable moat in this market. We can go and find that, find a business in that area, and move there because that's a place that we want to be. Well, someone trained in logic will break those claims down. I'm gonna say, well, is there actually though? So let's look at the evidence. Okay, is there a moat we can go and find? Maybe that wouldn't be the process of that would be looking at businesses in the industry and figuring out if that actually makes sense. And then say you find it out that it does make sense. You might go, okay, well, now we know that it makes sense, but does it make sense for us at this stage? And then we would talk about our financial picture, where we're projecting to be in the next year, two years, five years, ten years, and talk about how that strategy fits into it. And so we would use that. In a, we would use a very systematic process of logic every step of the way 
in determining whether this move makes sense. And a lot of the time, things that sound great and seem great in the beginning, even to me, they seem great in the beginning. Like, oh yeah, that's a really interesting idea. What about you know moving into this business? What about moving into this business, right? Um, once we examine them a little more and a little more carefully, now we start to see problems that pop up that you, through the use of logic, you can identify. Like, you know, um, okay, well, there's great growth in this, in say, XYZ industry. There's great growth here. We want to be here. Okay, well, what's it going to cost us to get there? Okay, well, then we have to purchase a business at X multiple of revenue to get there, and that will make us incur X, Y number uh, amount of debt. And so we know we have to produce XYZ margins. And so we have our basic template. And we'll go, okay, well, that's fine because this is a high growth industry. We want to get into that. But then we start looking at, oh, but maybe there's a key person risk in that business. Mm. Maybe, you know, do we have the skills to then go and fill that risk if that key person in that business leaves? If we do, then maybe, okay, we're on to the next step. What about the detailed financials of the business and other concerns? But if we don't, okay, take a step back. Maybe we should look at industries or sectors that don't have such a high key person risk, right? Because mm -hmm. just the technical considerations are lower or what have you, right? So there's all kinds of different considerations that go into um, businesses. And, and, you know, if you are in a position where you're acquiring a business or you're moving into a business with a, a new partner, uh, that where you are counting on this person whose business you've just acquired, that puts you in a vulnerable position, depending on how you structured your acquisition and all that, because there are different yeah. uh, legal um, implements you can use. But, <clears throat> pardon me, but um, the, you're in a position of risk there. So it comes down to making a, um, a cost-benefit analysis of whether that risk makes sense for you. And that, it might make sense for us, but not another firm. Or it might make sense for them, but not us, depending on the situation. And figuring that all out is a process of logic, right? And so everyone is doing logic. Some people are doing it poorly. Mm -hmm. And so learning philosophy is a way to do, learn how to do logic properly and learn how to use ration, the tools of rationality properly. Mm -hmm. Because when you look at, you know, say another hypothetical firm, they might go, okay, well, we want to do X, Y, Z. Here are the drawbacks of X, Y, Z. We've weighed them out and we decide that we want to do it anyway. And they just made that decision based on their own intuition and experience. That's not an actual guarantee that it's the right decision. And in logic, if you, if you have a deductive argument and you lay this all out systematically, um, if your premises are true, it actually is a guarantee you're making the right decision because you've guaranteed from true premises and watertight um, argument structure, you've guaranteed you will get to your conclusion. Now, maybe you were mistaken in one of your premises, and if, that, if that's the case, then you thought you had a guarantee, but you actually didn't, and there was a mistake made. But if you did it properly, and if you, your premises are actually true, and the structure of your argument is actually deductively linked to your conclusion, the structure of uh, your argument deductively links the premises to the conclusion, you're guaranteed to get that conclusion if your premises are true. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's actually, there's no way, it's 100% certainty, mm -hmm. right? It would be like saying um, um, human, human beings need to take a breath every however many minutes 
Um, therefore, I will take a breath in the next however many minutes or I will die. That's true. There is no way that that is false. <laughs> say it like I need to take a breath in the next five minutes or I will die. I, just, I don't know if five minutes is correct, but say it is. There is no way for that argument to be false. What if, what, if, what if you have some serious condition that enables you to hold your breath for longer than... In that case, then the premise wasn't true. The, the, the blanket premise that all human beings need to breathe within five minutes, that's not true. It needs to be amended to. Most human beings do, but this one guy needs to breathe within 10 minutes or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. So your premise might be false. <clears throat> that's something to... That's something to notice. Your premise could be false. You could be mistaken. But if your premise is true, your conclusion guaranteed comes from it in a deductive argument. Again, there's, there's other types of arguments that are less certain, induction. But um, the, in a deductive argument, if your premises are true, you are guaranteed to get your conclusion. Now, your premises might be false. You might have made a mistake. But if you didn't, if you got those right and your structure is right, you have to get that. It's like saying, if I add two plus two, I have to get four. It's the only thing I can get. And you might say, well, what if you didn't have two? What if you had three? Okay, if I had three, then, then, I, get four, then I don't get four. Mm -hmm. But if I have two plus two, I have to get four. There's no other way. By virtue of the definition of two, two, and plus, I have to get four. Right, so math, mathematics, is actually a type of logic. It's a numerically symbolized logic. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. And a, a, a bit off topic, but how you said <coughs> 2 plus 2 equals, mm -hmm. um, I just learned today that the usual, uh, or before some 1800s, whatever, um, everybody would write 2 plus 2, and then in brackets you'd write equals 2, close bracket, and then whatever your answer is. But then this scientist or, I don't know, whatever, he said, why don't we just have two lines that are ex equal to each other, and then like that would be the sign instead of writing equals to whatever. Symbolize, e symbolizing equivalence. So, I, I don't know. It was kind of off topic, but... <coughs> no, it's about not. Those um, two, and that was, that was pretty cool. We so. have a similar thing in, in logic, in formal logic. There is a symbol for equivalence. Um, yeah, it's, it's basically... Well, there's, there's actually a few different variants, but <clears throat> the main one is like a line with arrows on both sides, basically saying, um, you know, this is equivalent to that. Right? And then we have symbols for um, and and if then, right? So a lot of things are in logic, there's actually not that many um, statements. But what you, what you realize when you study logic is that it's not even down to language. It's because it's about propositions. Because um, a proposition can be expressed in multiple, any language, right? So you have a proposition, you have like, you know, my name is Sam. My name is Samuel Holmes, right? You have that as a proposition. That can be expressed in a hundred different languages, but it's the same proposition. It doesn't change. The meaning's the same, mm -hmm. right? I can say it in French, Chinese. I, I don't speak these languages, but presuming I did, you could say it in French, Spanish, Chinese, anything. It would be the same meaning. The meaning doesn't change. 
The meaning is my name is Sam Holmes. Mm -hmm. That name identifies me. That's the meaning. If, even if you're saying it in a different language, it's the same thing. Mm -hmm. So that is, it's an interesting thing where um, once you figure that out, you go, okay, well, you have propositions now that these are like claims about the world, usually about something in the world. And then you link them to other claims, right? So like we would link two to the other two with a plus sign, right? You would link that proposition like, um, you know, my name is. So you would say like my name and then equivalent, right, is equivalent to Samuel Holmes, right? And so then you would go, okay, well, that's my name. That name is equivalent to who, who I am. Who I am is equivalent to that, right? So that would be how you do it. And there's a sign for that. And all mm -hmm. of that, and you would go on with, um, um, you know, other symbols as well, and, or, if then, um, so, uh, you combine these to create more and more complex claims, and then you would have to work them out and evaluate. Okay, and you would do it very. It's almost mathematical. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So all these symbols got me thinking about um, mm -hmm. math and calculus in specific. Mm -hmm. Did you take calculus, or what type of math did you take in high school? No, so I actually, um, I actually was very poor at math in high school, and, and still am by all accounts. <laughs> and um, so math is not my specialty at all. Um, and in fact, I find mathematics, when I was first, when an instructor first tried to teach me formal logic in a very mathematically um, centered way, I couldn't pick it up because to me, math not being my strong suit, it wasn't um, easy for me to pick up. By the way, some people love it like that. I had to be taught a different way um, by a different instructor who taught it in a much more digestible for me way, which was based on propositions. Oh. And so actually looking at, okay, this is what the proposition is and this is what the symbol means. And that symbol means... And, so when we say and, just to pick one, yeah. when we say and, what we mean is this and this together. You can't have one or the other, it's both, right? And so when, whenever you see argument one or statement one linked to statement two with and, you know that that's both of those things together by necessity. You can't have one without the other. And so... And then on and on and on for the others. Mm -hmm. And then you sort of combine them together in your head and you can see how it all works. And so being taught through uh, propositions made it a lot easier for me to wrap my head around it. And then once I knew it, now I can see why it's more mathematical. And, you know, I have the full picture, um, at least at my level. I'm, I'm, you know, not an expert in it, but I, I understand, um, you know, um, introductory level logic quite well. And so that that um, is more identifiable for me now. But if you walked into, when I walked into that first class to be taught it, and it was all symbols and mathematics and basically be told, oh, this is math, but instead of numbers, we're using these letter symbols and instead mm -hmm. of plus minus, we're using these connectives. I was like, what? What's going yeah. on here? Right? Like I, you know, that's not my strong suit at all. Um, and I'm like, I didn't think that's what philosophy was. Um, and it's one way to do Logic, in my opinion, not the best way. But again, different people have different learning styles. Mm -hmm.
What made, what made you want to go into philosophy and study this and oh. get a bachelor's degree in it? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. Um, <clears throat> so, I had a lot of... Um, I was relatively well-informed in high school of political and social events. I kept up with things. Um, like outside of high school or in high school? Outside of high school. Okay. So, yeah, when I was in high school, I was very, like, a socially conscious kid and I, I cared a lot about politics and all that and I studied history and politics in my own time outside of high school mm-hmm. um, as a passion and so I sort of always had this idea that I wanted to get into politics and, and study this you know more more carefully and so then when I wound up going to uni- well so uh, after high school I joined the military and um, I went through years of, of training and, and service and different exercises and um, taskings and uh, domestic deployments and things like that. And uh, had a lot of, gained a lot of uh, super valuable experience. And uh, so I sort of decided at one point I wanted to get politically active. So I started volunteering um, for, um, I started volunteering for the NDP locally here. And um, I spent a fair amount of time doing that. What do you mean by volunteering, sorry? Yeah, so I would go and, like, um, I volunteered on the 2013 provincial... No, sorry, the 2000... Yeah, the 2000... Um, f- sorry, my memory is bad here. 2015 federal election, the okay. 2017 provincial election, and um, there was a municipal election in there somewhere, too, but I don't remember what year it was. Mm-hmm. Um Anyway, so I, in the 2015 federal election, um, I was sort of at a lower level. I, I, I was sort of cutting my teeth, learning, going door to door, learning how to talk to voters and things like a canvassing and, and just getting a sense, going to convention and getting a sense of the political landscape um, and wound up taking a, a larger role. And then I wound up in the 2017 provincial election actually being the um, uh, director of fundraising for the election committee. Uh, for here for South Delta. So um, I was the director of financing for that election in 2017 for our MLA candidate, Bruce Reed, here in Delta South. Mm-hmm. Um, didn't win the election, didn't win that riding, unfortunately, um, but was a lot of great experience. And I um, enjoyed my time a lot. And, and in working in politics, volunteering in politics, I sort of got the sense, I thought, okay, maybe I'll make a career out of this. I might want to work in this in some capacity. And so in discussing with people, essentially everyone told me, well, um, you know, you need a degree to work in anywhere in politics, essentially. You know, this is the days of working in um, either for political parties or in government office and anything related to politics is sort of without a degree or gone. And so I thought, okay, well, that's, um, you know, that's fair enough, I should probably go and get a degree. So I thought, well, maybe I'll either go and get a political science or a philosophy degree. And so the more I thought about political science and what's involved in it, I sort of always kept getting back to fundamental questions because this is the same dynamic that I was telling you about in the beginning of the interview where it's like all these other disciplines make assumptions. Mm -hmm. Philosophy doesn't make assumptions, right? It goes dead to the root. And so, well, 
you do make assumptions in philosophy, but you, you track those. That's the discipline, right? So you know the assumptions you're making and you examine them. And so you'd get to these, I'd have these, you know, political views and beliefs, which I thought were well-grounded. And I thought, okay, well, I've reasoned myself to these pretty well. Um, but then I think about them a little more and I go, okay, well, how do I know that? Right? And at the time I, was, I didn't know this, but I was doing philosophy. I, okay, well, how do I know that? And so I thought, like, oh, okay, well, what's actually the evidence for that? Okay, I have some evidence. But then, you know, you hear the, counter, the countering side, the, the other political view against what you think. And some people react very negatively to that. And they, you know, they get defensive. And they go, oh, well, that person's wrong. He's got a different, that person's wrong. For me, it wasn't that at all. I thought, oh, well, why does someone think that? Like, that's not how I see it. Why do they see it that way? And then you examine that a little bit. And if you do that in good faith and examine the other side a little bit, you realize, oh, there's, an, there's a whole other perspective there. There's a whole different set of premises that I hadn't even considered, right? And so that made me realize, just internally thinking about this, like maybe I, I need to go into philosophy and think about some of these issues deeper than political science addresses them. Because political science is sort of like, it's a few stages above, right? Like it's, once you've got all these assumptions, um, you know, you're, you can then talk about how the actual politics works and, you know, the different structures and systems of government and what, the, what some of these ideologies are based on. But there's a deeper story under it. And I wanted to get to the truth of what that was. And so that's why I went the philosophy route. Um, and so um, I did that, you know, while in the military. I, I wasn't super serious about it to start. Uh, and then eventually I sort of fell out of love with politics um, because of how, to be, to be frank, because of how polarized and how um, unreasonable politics has become in our age. I think a lot of that, well, there's be a whole nother two hours on why that's the case social media and, and modern interaction in the world but um, politics sort of I found um, it less appealing the more mm -hmm. I sort of thought about it as well and you know I became less certain of the political views I had prior as I thought about them more and um, you know philosophy just in general encouraging me to become much more reasoned and much more careful about what I believed. And so that sort of pushed me um, out of politics a little bit and more towards law. Because I thought, well, um, you know, law might be a better pathway to go down because it's a little bit more objective in the sense that you, you know, there are laws on the books. You might agree with them or not, but they are the law. And so you litigate that. Right? If you're defending someone, you're defending them. If you're prosecuting them, you're prosecuting or what have you. Yeah. In a civil case, you know, you're, you're you know, seeking damages or defending from damages or what have you. Um, and so that sort of moved me more in the direction of law. And then um, my friends, who I think I mentioned before the interview, who uh, started the company, who started Maker Capital. Yeah. Yeah, so they wound up, um, they had their own path of going through financial markets and, and uh, digital marketing and design. And so when they created this company um, and brought me on relatively early within the first few months and said, you know, we want um, to bring you on because we think you can add value to this, I was sold basically because I thought, oh, well, this is a perfect synergy here because now I can apply, you know, what, I, what I'm doing now in my academic life with um, 
rigorous thought and rational contemplation and just general argumentative evaluations that is taught in, in philosophy. I can apply that and hand in glove gives me um, a pathway uh, post law school now gives me a pathway to go into this area of corporate and business law right to f facilitate this and so because uh, I have a few friends who have gone through law school and, and one of the problems they run into after going through is um, you know okay where do I go now what area of law do I get into right what do I specialize in Right? And, and it's right. a problem for people. And I thought, oh, well, this is a, a hand-in-glove solution for me because that's sort of now, um, you know, being brought in to help work, um, you know, with the venture bio side of the company really gives a path for all of my um, logical and, you know, in the future, uh, legal exploration of throughout my academic career and my professional life. So it sort of um, really crystallized my direction mm -hmm. in that respect. And, um, you know, I, I don't rule out getting back into politics at a later time. But for now, that's on the shelf yeah. for me. That's on the shelf. I'm, I'm going to, you know, focus on the philosophical questions and the financial questions. And, uh, you know, down the road, maybe I'll get into the political questions. But What advice could you give to other students that are about to graduate high school and that are unsure about what they might want to do or study later on? Hmm. I would say, do you mean specifically for university or just in life in general? Uh, let's, do, let's do university. Well, for university, I would say a couple things. One thing is um, definitely, definitely register in some philosophy courses, even if you're not going to take that as a major. Um, even if that's not something that you liked growing up or you see yourself in, because it will give you a taste of how to think. And it gives you an opportunity to um, evaluate other things you do more clearly. Mm -hmm. And so definitely try it. And even if you drop out, <laughs> at least you gave it a try. It's not an easy discipline. But it's worth, it's worth pursuing. Um, the second thing would be take a wide variety of courses in different departments. Don't stick in one thing. Like if you want to get an English degree or a criminology degree or whatever you want to do, um, don't just stick in that. Take as many courses as you can from a wide variety of things and see what these different disciplines are about. Take some anthropology. Take some psychology. Take a sociology course or two. Take... Uh, you know, criminology, like I said, English literature, philosophy, take all of this, and in the sciences, take biology. Um, if you're good with mathematics and, and um, the sciences, take chemistry and other earth sciences. Like, go expand your, your horizon wide if you're not sure, because it gives you a taste of, that was one thing I really am glad that I did, is I took intro-level courses or first- and second-year-level courses in almost, I think I took them in every department of the humanities and social sciences, if I'm not mistaken. There might be one or two I didn't, but it was pretty, almost everything I took it in. Mm -hmm. I, I took classes, one or two or three classes in, you know, history, political science, all of these, sociology, all of them. Uh -huh. And it gives you a good, it gives you a good understanding, at least 
of what the discipline is about. And that will sort of help you make your decision of what you are good at and what interests you, right? Because fundamentally, like if you want to study the brain and learn how the brain works, um, you know, you should take psychology and see if that interests you. And maybe you take some psychology and you take some sociology and you take some philosophy and you learn, oh, actually, I don't really want to study like the physical um, constituents of the brain as much and that seems to be more of the psychological focus maybe I want to study like the philosophical idea of consciousness and, and okay. what the mind is yeah. or maybe I want to study the sociological perspectives on you know how people think and act in the world and how that relates to um, how that creates the societies that we have and how they how people interact with each other on the basis of how they think. That would be more of a sociological focus, right? And so there's different ways to approach these topics and each discipline sort of has their own um, perspective on it. And you don't necessarily know the full perspective until you try full perspective. So I would say try things as much as possible yeah. um, and think through things. I'm not sure if you saw on my handout that I had on the, the, um, at the KPU event but um, there's a video made by one of our fabulous um, professor, philosophy professors at KPU, uh, Mark Champagne. He's he's fantastic academic. Highly recommend his work. And he um, made this video, which um, maybe you can link that as well. I can send sure. it to you. Yeah, it's a short YouTube video, uh -huh. and it basically talks about the value of philosophy and a lot of the assumptions that people make about, like I was mentioning before, oh, it's not going to prepare you for a career, you're not going to make any money off of it, yada, yada, yada. You actually look at the data, and people who get a bachelor's in philosophy actually perform higher than a lot of other fields that you would think would make more, like pre-law in the States, marketing, business, mm -hmm. these things where you would assume a graduate in that would make more money, actually not the case. And the reason it's not the case is because, you know, in my view, is because... Um, teaching people to think has a really beneficial impact on their ability to make a career for themselves, right? And yeah. whether you're starting a business or you're going to get hired from someone, yeah. they want to know that you can think and that you can figure out what's right, right? And if you're a sharp person, you know, if you're going to law school, med school, any type of post-grad school after your bachelor's, um, you know, a degree where you... Can pr you've proved that you can work through some of the densest, most complicated issues in a rational, um, logical way and can make sense of it, that's super valuable. You know, and yeah. a lot of people look for that in the academic world who know the true value of it. Um, so yeah, check out that video. And yeah. 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 Um, would you advocate for philosophy being a mandatory course in high school? Yes. I would. Yeah. I think the only danger there is, um, or like the teacher's capability of teaching it. Well, that's, I mean, I, I, I think that's in every subject. Yeah. Right? Well, <laughs> I mean, so yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, I mean, theoretically, if you have, I don't know how the system works exactly, but theoretically, if you have um, a teacher teaching um, like math, right, mm -hmm. at a high school level, they, I believe, have to have like a degree from a STEM background. I believe. Well, in addition oh, to yeah. the, in addition to the, um, the education certificate. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, people. I, th I would hope. 
in the high schools have a bit of a fundamental in in the you know the the three R's or whatever right the basics. But um, in philosophy, it's one of these things where it's harder for people unless they've been trained in this. But I do think there's material we can provide, and in fact, I think there's an organization. Um, I can't remember the name of it. There is a Canadian organization that is um, desi- that's built around trying to get philosophy into high schools and providing oh. materials to help help um, school boards do that. Uh, I can find those uh, that organization as well. And so basically, that um, I think that if those types of materials were provided and teachers were competent in the material it would be incredibly beneficial. And to be honest, even if they're not competent in the material, it's probably better than a lot of other subjects that are being taught. But um, especially if the teachers know what they're talking about when they're teaching this stuff, it really gives you, it really gives students tools to be, um, you know, financially independent, mentally independent, critically, to be able to critically think and form your own thoughts and not rely on popular opinion. Mm-hmm. That is a huge, like no one needs that more than high school students generally. Being able to critically think for yourself and yeah. go against the crowd because you recognize the crowd is making a logical error. Yeah. That in itself, that's a powerful tool, man, to give to high school kids. Like that in itself will allow people to make their own path in life, you know. Yeah, I remember in psychology, we watched a video where, I forgot, the, I forgot what the experiment was called, but it was where everybody was shown um, two lines, uh, vertical lines. One was obviously bigger, A line. Yeah. One was obviously smaller, B line. Mm-hmm. And they'd have, they'd line up, let's say, 20 people. Um, ev- the first 19 people would be in on the experiment. The mm-hmm. last person wouldn't be. So the first, they asked the first person, yes. which line is longer? And they would say B, which is obviously shorter, but, but that's, that's the experiment, right? They'd go through everybody, everybody's gonna say B, 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 B. Once you get to that last person who's not in on the experiment, they heard everybody say B, yeah. and they don't wanna be the odd one in the crowd, so they say B, and they bel- they start to believe that B is the right answer when obviously it isn't. There's a, there's a similar experiment where um, they set up people in an elevator, and there's a public elevator, looking the wrong way. Yeah, yeah, and, I remember and, that yeah, one. Yeah, a certain number of people will look at the wall, at the blank wall, <laughs> for no reason, um, just because other people are. Yeah. Uh, and it sort of speaks to this herd mentality of a lot of people. Um, which really, I think, reflects our sort of evolutionary past where, you know, safety was in numbers, right? And safety wasn't doing what everyone else was doing. But when you have a modern society that's built on uh, enlightenment, liberal principles of rational discussion and debate, and the idea that every citizen will contribute to the intellectual and moral life of the community by giving their opinion and using their vote and participating in their democracy to help form that democracy and to help make these collective decisions. When your society's built on that like ours is, I mean, you need people to make good decisions, rationally well-grounded decisions, 
or your collective decisions are going to turn out pretty poorly. Yeah. Right. And now what we have, unfortunately, is a lot of people who make poor decisions. Um, and I'm speaking in like the public sense of like political views and political support, um, a very irrational, like deeply irrational positions on both sides of the political aisle. And there's no, there doesn't seem to be much um, moderation of, of rational thought. And, and the beauty of logic is that like it tells you when you're, when you're wrong. I don't know if you've ever heard the phrase like mugged by reality, mm, but like okay. basically like if you're, if you're delusional, and like you, you know, you think you can fly and you jump off a building to fly, you're going to be mugged by reality pretty quick. Oh, okay. Right? Like that's sort of the idea, right? Reality, reality, when you are juxtaposed against reality, reality wins, right? And so in order to avoid, you know, like violence and, and bad, really bad outcomes, political outcomes that we don't want, I think that we need to have systems of thought in our public discourse that stop people before they get past a point of no return. And that to me is is logic. You know, you have the idea that when someone can show you why your belief and your argument is contradictory mm-hmm. and it doesn't make sense, it's on you and and people if they had a background in, in rational thought and in philosophy, they might do this, I think, more. It's on you to put your ego aside and realize, oh, I made a mistake here. I've done this many times in my life where I was certain of something. I thought for sure. And then you hear evidence and you hear argumentation that shows you you made a mistake. Yeah. And you go, oh, well, crap. I was wrong here, right? And you just sort of... Re- realize and then that is the reality that needs to be the reality mugging you in the face unfortunately what we have now is a system where people just bull right over that don't even listen and engage yeah. and they'll go um so say i'm a I'm a, I'm a deeply conservative person and i have all these conservative views and someone shows me a contradiction the conservative person will go well you're a liberal so I don't listen. I, I, I don't yeah. need to listen. And if you're a very liberal, progressive person and a conservative person shows you a, how your views don't make sense, you go, ah, oh, well, that's just a conservative talking point. I yeah. don't need to address it. It's like, but is the talking point correct? You shouldn't care whether it's a, it's a conservative talking point. You should conser- care whether the content of it is correct. Right? You need to actually go. And so this is the issue. Yeah. You know, and a lot we're of... lacking that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. A lot of conversations that happen, uh, just like you said, you're this person, I'm not going to listen to you, mm-hmm. you know, when, when they might in reality have very valid arguments. And this is like, as a society, we won't get closer to each other, you know, we'll have mm-hmm. this divide in, in this topic, this topic, this topic, this topic, and we'll every single day, every single argument where we don't listen to each other, mm-hmm. we get more and more divided, which doesn't is not a healthy society, I, no. I could say. It's, you're exactly right. And what happens is that eventually when people don't talk to each other and don't listen, that's really the key is listening um, and listening honestly and seriously, eventually these disagreements turn to violence, right? And we've yeah. seen that in history. Oh, yeah. And that's where civil wars and, and revolutions and outbreaks and these really horrible things that happen where innocent people are killed... Um, that's what happens is, is 
you can't even agree anymore on a reality, right? And when you have people who just don't agree on a reality, that's really tough. And that's one of the biggest problems I have with the modern news industry is that it seems to be built largely on catering to an audience. Yeah. And that shouldn't be the case. You need mm. a you need a grounding you need a news industry that's based on facts and not selected conveniently selected facts, but all of the facts in an even-handed way, right? You have to have editors who make the decision to be even-handed and fair. And as soon as you lose that, you go down a you go down a bad path. Oh, right? yeah. And social media is even worse because they give you exactly what they think you yeah. want. Yeah. Based on At the end of the day, it's all a business and they're in it for or some of them I could say are in it for the money and yeah. and just, just like we talked about where um, people in politics and in the government will choose what's right for them and their values because mm -hmm. you know it's it's it, That's it, what they it think. sounds right for them. Mm -hmm. Um and so yeah, so I mean you're right, social media is is too, but social media is I'd say even more because I don't know. It's like whatever the social media company wants to push, they'll push. Then again, same with media. So I don't know. It's the the issue with social media is that there's no um, sort of gatekeeper, right? There's no one verifying that the information's true. Mm -hmm. The media companies, traditional media companies, they you know, and their whole claim to legitimacy is on okay, we have editorial standards. We everything we say is true. Well, often what they say is true, but not the whole story. And that's a big part of the problem. That's a really big part. And, and stories will be framed around quoting advocates who themselves are very biased. So you'll take any contentious issue. So say like, um, take an environmental issue. I just thought of that. So you'll have like an issue of whether we should extract oil sands, maybe, from one particular mm -hmm. part of Alberta. And so you'll have this issue comes up because there's a proposed extraction of a project for extracting oil sands. And news media, a lot of news media, will interview um, climate change activists who are very anti-oil and anti-development and will frame the whole story, which is a true story, around the claims of the activist. So they'll quote the person, so they'll find like, activist A, and that person says, oil sands development destroying Canada. Mm -hmm. That'll be the headline, but attributed to this person. So, like, the news media, very, it's like very clever. It's like, they're not actually saying it. It's this activist saying it. But they're choosing to just go to the activist and get the one side of the story. Yeah. Are they talking to the people in business and industry who talk about how, much, how many jobs this will create? That's what they're supposed to do, and I think traditionally what media did. But there's less of that now. There's more, well, we'll show this side of the story. That's what we want to show. We'll leave the rest... We'll leave the rest out. And that creates more, more of a divide because people start picking sides. What do you think would be the answer for this? And how do you think this, like, is, is this something that could be fixed? Oh, man, you bring the tough questions. <laughs> um, I have to, I have to. Yeah, well, no, you know what? These are good questions to ask. I, um, <clears throat> I do think it can be fixed. Um, how we fix it? is a really difficult question because fundamentally um, the trust in our society is being broken and eroded between different 
viewpoints where there used to be like a mutual trust, a mutual reality everyone shared. And now that's being broken down. And um, it's really, it's hard to, it's hard to link people again. I think what you need is you need people in positions of power and influence who have a fundamental commitment to things like free speech, even-handedness in media coverage, um, democratic processes on contentious issues, all kinds of the, all of these things that don't favor one side or the other. You know, especially like the judiciary, a lot of our Canadian judiciary takes um, one particular legal view in many cases. And, you know, there's a, there's a very, um, there's a lot of institutions that are designed for impartial or as impartial as possible management, which are currently being managed by people with an activist mindset. And that is a problem because as much as they might think that whatever their cause is, is justified and is worthy, the institutions don't exist to, to allow you to be an activist through them. They exist to regulate the competing claims of different groups. And so when a large number of people who are activists for one particular view or one particular set of views take over in um, certain powerful institutions, well, then everything gets regulated through their views. Okay. Yeah. And there's no neutral entity to litigate these competing claims because the referee is sort of betting on the one side yeah. to you know, use a hockey analogy. Yeah. So, so I think, could, could that ever be fixed? Well, I think... Um, it, could we actually get someone who is that neutral? Like, because everybody has an yeah. opinion. Everybody has where they fear yeah, one way yeah. or another. Is this going to be a robot that's going to come with it? <laughs> is someone, is the person who built that robot going to put some little... Uh... It's an interesting thought. So we can talk about AI if you want to. But oh, yeah. there's a lot of philosophy on that, uh, built around that. But, um, and and um, the professor I mentioned earlier, Mark Champagne, he's actually uh, writing a book right now um, called um, uh, Endangered Experiences, Skipping Newfangled Technologies. And that's a... Um, uh, a portion of that book will be dedicated to AI, and it's eventually cool. essentially talks about some of the, the threats and the worries posed by some of this modern technology. Mm -hmm. I encourage everyone to, to look it up. I, I believe you can um, get uh, at least a chunk of it for free on the internet right now. Um, but um, regardless, um, the of AI, the question about whether that could happen, because whether we could find people who are neutral. So this is an interesting question because a lot of the activist type of people, they have swallowed a philosophy and a view that no one is neutral, no one can be neutral, everyone has their own biases, yeah. and so we might as well get good biases rather than bad biases. They have sort of internalized this view, and to them, like that, view, that set of claims I just made, that's not even up for debate in the quarters of a lot of these people. So... To that view, I say, <laughs> if everything's just as a, a process of everyone's own bias, how do you know what biases are good and what are bad? Because you're just going off of your own. Yeah. Notice it's sort of self-defeating. It defeats its own claim to objective reality, right? Like if, if this is a common debate tactic you see among, um, I mean, I'll just call it what it is, the, the progressive activist types you see now very common. Um, where someone will make a claim they don't like 
and they'll say, well, uh, you're just, uh, like someone says something about, um, say the, the debate is on um, a contentious issue around um, gender relations or, or um, you know, the extent of um, the patriarchy or feminist critiques of society or whatever. Mm-hmm. And someone will push back against that and make a, make a comment against that. And, and the common tactic that's used is the, the rejoinder, well, you can't say that because you're a man and as a man, you don't have, you're just saying that to preserve your own power and you don't have access to the individual um, experiences, lived experiences of women and yada, 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 and on yeah. and on and on. So, I mean, there's about three reasons why that's a totally incoherent statement. But notice that, like, you could flip that around and say, well, as a woman then, assuming this was a woman, you would have no access to my views as a man, and so yeah. you can't say anything that has any bearing on me. Since I can't say anything that holds you to account, you can't say anything that holds me to account, right? And so they sort of dive into this obsession with subjectivity and one's own subjective view, and in doing that, undercut their own claim to objective reality. Because if they can apply that standard to you, there's nothing stopping you from applying it to them. Yeah. Fortunately, yeah. a lot of the activists try to make that move and try to stop you from applying it back to them by, by trying to ground things in power dynamics. And that's, we would need another two hours for me to explain why that doesn't make sense. But um, the, in, many, in many applications, that doesn't make sense, I should say. Um, but what I will say is that that's a very cynical view that every, everyone's biased about everything and there will never be sort of an objective view. Like that's, I think um, that's born of too many sociologists and not enough philosophers, in my opinion. There's too many people who are focused on social groups and social differences and um, purported epistemic gaps that don't allow one person to access other subjective um, lived, quote-unquote, lived experiences. Um, and not enough questioning of that doctrine and whether people actually can share objective reality, right? Because, like, I might say to one of these people, you know, well, I'm heavily biased against computers, but that doesn't mean I can say the computer doesn't exist in this room. It's right there. No amount of bias mean, will allow me to honestly say that computer doesn't exist, Right? Mm-hmm. So things, there's a lot of things that are just verifiable in the world, you yeah. know? So like any type of bias you have, um, you know, again, it gets mugged by reality in a lot of cases. And in the cases where it's harder to prove and, and it's not as obvious, um, you know, there's a legitimate critique there that, that um, people's biases may play a role. But I think that that doesn't suggest that we should put good biases in instead of bad because again how would you know what the good biases were but I think what that suggests is you should put people who are very very cognizant of um, rational intellectual processes and very very logically consistent should put people in who are experts in logic and logical thinking who will apply things evenly across the board in a way that logically makes sense even if it goes against their own bias Um, And there's a lot of philosophical types who, who are like this, 
And I think that that is, um, especially in the analytic tradition, philosophy has different traditions. And the analytic tradition is particularly one which is focused on um, logic and rational thought and making sure that your claims add up and make sense. And so I think in that tradition especially, and people who have come through that tradition, um, it really show... it really would help to institute people who have that type of mindset. They're not necessarily professional philosophers, but people who have that mindset of really being careful to apply things evenly and fairly. And um, you need people who value that intrinsically, right? Because like someone who's deeply biased will say, well, I'll pretend, I'll make it look like I'm fair, but really what I care about is like getting my, my people, my side to win, right? But you don't want someone like that. You don't want someone who pretends to go through the motions of a little bit of neutrality, but really what they're actually after is to propagate their side. You want people who genuinely value neutrality and objectivity for its own sake. And people who who push towards that um, very consciously and who know that are... Our systems depend on that. Because if they don't, if you get rid of that, um, well, I mean, no one's, there's no basis for fairness. If you stop treating people equally, there's no basis for fairness. Because now, um, well, what are you going to replace it with? What are you going to replace equality with, right? The standard, um, you know, progressive um, response. And, And, you know, I say that sort of, pejoratively, but, um, you know, I, like I said, I volunteer for the NDP, like I'm a progressive guy myself, or at least like that's my political history. But a lot of the excesses I see from the activist types now really are focused on um, this sort of idea that, well, anyone who is of XYZ characteristic is inherently biased because of their characteristics. Um, you know, that's a, that's a deeply backwards way to think in, in my view. And, and I think once you accept that claim, um, there's no way to actually create a fairness anymore because any type of fairness you prescribe to replace any type of equity you prescribe to replace formal equality will now devolves into, okay, well, what's equitable? Well, you can't just treat everyone equal anymore. Now i got to go, okay, well, you are in X group, Y group, and Z group, yeah. but you're not in B group. So this guy's in B group and X group, so how are we going to, like, it doesn't make sense. And, and fundamentally, you need to, it stops viewing people as individuals and it starts viewing people as, as groups, as members of groups, mm-hmm. right? And that's sort of a, a deeply um, upsetting, I think that's an upsetting trend in modern progressive politics, certainly for people who grew up in the progressive movement and the labor movement myself. My parents have a very strong union background. It was upsetting for me to see that type of um, dead denigration in the movement where it's 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 really is like a we've gone backwards in many ways unfortunately i hate to say it but it is the case in my view Mm -hmm. so from listening to that fairness is i'm starting to think that fairness isn't really a thing that we could ever there's there's always going to be someone who is at a disadvantage or an uh, advantage than another person Yes, like everyone's at different levels of advantages and disadvantages in different ways. But I guess, you know, as formal equality would tell it, 
fairness is just treating people equally, right? And so the, the people who are skeptical of that say, well, that was always a fantasy. We can't do that. So we need to like take into account people's individuals, um, you know, oppressed characteristics or what have you, right? Um, whereas if you don't grant that premise though, and you say, no, no, equality is possible. Treating people equally is possible. Like, you know, we have a, say we have a court case and I'm a man and the other side of the court case is a woman. Um, I think it's very, it's possible for that judge, man or woman judge, to adjudicate that case totally fairly and equally without bias because I'm a man or they're a woman. I think that's totally possible. Mm-hmm. But you need to have the right kind of judge. You need to have a judge who values that and who's conscious of that and who wants that type of fairness and who values it, right? If you have a judge who thinks, well, our society is patriarchal, there's a lot of inherent sexism, women are oppressed in our society, so maybe, you know, in this case, yes, if, I, if it was totally equally, then maybe I would, I would, side, I would rule against the, the woman, say she's a, the plaintiff. I would rule in her, I would rule um, in her favor, rather. Um, but, or if, if things were completely equal, I would rule against her. But because they're not completely equal, I won't. I'll, uh, maybe I'll still rule the same way, but I'll lower the punishment, or I'll actually rule the other way against the man. And what kind of judge do you want? Do you want one who acts as like a judicial activist to try to like right the wrongs of society in front of inner court? Or do you want someone who just neutrally, evenly, fairly applies the law? But even judges, um, I know that to go under oath to say that they, they'll be unbiased and all that, but deep inside them, they have an opinion on the matter that could be, uh, that could come up in front of them. For sure. And do, would, do, do we know that a judge could be ruling secretly biased to one side rather than the other? Um, well, certainly a lot of them could be doing that. And to the extent they are doing that, that's a problem. Um, you know, I guess it's like, what is the solution to that is really the, the answer uh, or really the important question to ask. And so um, my position would be the answer to that is you find, you get judges who um, are more dedicated to neutrality. And regardless of their own biases, recognize their own bias and go, yeah, I, I'm aware. Like, so someone comes in, right? Like, cause I have a military background. I'm a very, um, you know, patriotic Canadian, I would say. And um, so say if I was the judge in this hypothetical case mm-hmm. and a terrorist came who launched a terrorist action against Canada and I was trying his case, internally, inside me, I would think to myself, I really dislike this person for what they're alleged to have done, but I need to put that aside and I need to treat this person as if they're just anyone else. Is that possible? I think so. I, and in fact, with, with the tools of formal logic, it, it, it is because it's, that's totally neutral. It's totally um, blind to whoever is using them, right? So you would say like, say the claim was, or the case was built on like, did this person commit terrorism? Well, then you would say, okay, what's the standard of evidence for that? So let's just say hypothetically the standard of evidence was, you know, a few eyewitness accounts and a video surveillance footage that showed it. Mm -hmm. And you would say, 
that's the standard, hypothetically, if that's the standard. The case could come forward and could say, well, we have one eyewitness and we have another um, phone camera footage that doesn't really show the guy's face. And I might go look at it and go, I really dislike this person, but the standard is two eyewitnesses and surveillance footage and we don't meet that standard. I can't do it. I can't, you know, as much as I might dislike him, as much as I might think he's guilty personally, if that's the standard, then I can't convict. And I would rule in the terrorist's favor and I would, I would acquit because that's the, st- that's the logical standard, if that was the set standard. Mm-hmm. And so it sort of forces you, if you apply these tools of rigorous logic, now again, not all people do, but if you get the right people in who know these tools and can use them, you can now almost guarantee, as long as they follow the right process, um, you know, you can almost guarantee or at least get a lot closer to a guarantee that justice is going to be done. And I think traditionally judges, um, you know, I'm not an expert in, in legal history and philosophy, but I think traditionally judges had a more formalist view of, of equality, and now that's sort of being eroded a little bit. Um, where now judges are maybe looking at, okay, what are their background? Were they um, marginalized because of X, Y, Z factors? And do I factor that in? And right, So now things are moving a little bit in um, the opposite direction um, as to how I would have them be. Yeah. But yeah, I, I do think it's possible or at least um, possible in many cases, M- maybe not perfectly, but mm-hmm. I do think it can be done. You just need the right people who are committed to that, who are committed to putting their personal feelings aside. And when I say personal feelings aside, obviously they still feel them. But people who recognize those feelings go, ah, I know I'm biased against this person. I need to be really careful. That should be like a red flag. That should be like when you're driving and you see like the fucking, the, what, the flashing lights um, that warn you that a red light's coming. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's like, oh, flashing lights, red light, like slow down, right? That should be when you get, this, when you get the feeling inside you that you dislike someone or something. That's your flashing light. Okay, be really careful about your reasoning. Make sure that you're not making errors. Because if you make, because it's very easy to make errors when you don't like something. I have this happen all the time. Um, I'm listening to arguments or debates or things um, going on and I hear something I really dislike, like a claim or a view, like a political opinion or something. I really just dislike. I find it just like morally revolting almost. And then like I I just, you feel that anger or that dislike inside you. And to me now, because I'm trained in this now, to me that is warning lights. Like that to me tells me like, whoa, slow down. Like you're biased. Yeah. Okay, think about what think about what they're saying very carefully. Like, where is the problem? Can you actually find the problem, or is there no problem? Because if there's no problem with what they're saying, it doesn't matter that you don't like it. They're right. So you got to find where the problem is in what they're saying. Go and look at their claim exactly, and find where the fallacy or the bad premise is, or the structural um, issue in some of their argument is. You have, to fit, you have to go and find that because if that's not there, you know, it can upset you, but that just means you're upset at the truth. <laughs> right? Yeah. 
And so that is to me, but you need people who are trained and who have that, those values that, oh, okay, I don't like something. I, I need to, like that triggers me to think about this more deeply and more carefully, right? Mm -hmm. So that, I hope that answers the question. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, could we shift a bit and talk just a bit about AI? Yeah, of course. Yeah, you talked about a little bit about uh, how interesting that is, especially tying into philosophy. Mm -hmm. I just want to hear it from you. <laughs> well, um, AI is um, well. I'll put. I'll ask you this: Like, what do you think of um, like ChatGPT, and um, like, do you think that that could be? Do you think ChatGPT is intelligent? Do you think it's conscious? Or, or do you think maybe it's not, but a, a improved version might be? What do you think? So, first off, yes, I've used ChatGPT quite a bit. Mm -hmm. um, uh, probably shouldn't be saying this, but it helps me with school just a little <laughs> bit. Um, and, yeah, uh, conscious? That's a very good question. Well, do you think it's intelligent, I guess, is maybe a question. Because intelligent and conscious might be the same thing, but they might not necessarily be the same thing. Mm -hmm. I'm not a philosopher, so I'll, I'll say this how a student might. Yeah, um, go for it. From what I know mm -hmm. is what ChatGPT is, is it takes information off the web, off of here, off of here, off of here, puts it together for you and writes it out really clearly and very nicely. In that case, I don't think it's intelligent mm -hmm. because from what I know, I, I could be wrong, but it's taking all these sources and just m mushing it together. Now, where it might be intelligent is, is where, first of all, it could learn you, so, so you multiple users on ChatGPT, and from every single person that writes whatever they want to write, they learn from that conversation. It does learn, I believe. And that, to me, is pretty intelligent. What, it, what also is intelligent is that, I mean, it, it kind of ties into that, but for example, um, Tesla, they've started their autopilot. Uh, they've changed the entire thing. So first it was, okay, a computer sees a tree. A tree is X, okay? When we see that X, we know that's a tree. Here, they integrated AI into it. Now, AI says, okay, that's a tree. Okay, that's that. Okay, that's that. And it keeps learning. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I'm not too great to explain this, but it, it, it keeps learning when, when the old autopilot would see it's a tree. Mm, how would I say this? Uh, it, would see, it would see a tree, let's say, as a variable. Mm-hmm. With, with AI, it sees everything as its own thing and not a variable. So it doesn't substitute itself or the object, sorry, for a variable. It sees the object as the object mm -hmm. and goes off that. So, so autopilot would advance way more quickly than it has been. I mean, it's been going quickly, but it's going to advance way faster. ChatGPT will learn from its mistakes and, or it's not ChatGPT, sorry, AI would learn from its mistakes and correct itself. And so, yeah, but I think, I think in that sense, 
it is intelligent. Um, conscious? I don't know. So, I'm not sure. it does learn, um, as far as I know. And they don't even know how it's doing it, because it's so complex, like ChatGPT. Really? Um, yeah, they don't know how it's doing it, because it's been programmed in such a way that it constructs its own... Does that scare you? Processes? Though? Yes, very much. Oof. Very much. Just give me the chills. Um, yeah, it constructs its own processes, and it's so complicated that there's no engineer that can at OpenAI that can actually go in and see how it made a decision because the comp- the whole thing is actually too complex for any human to like figure it out. So because it makes its own constructs, right? So as far as far as I know, and and um, you know, this isn't my area um, in philosophy, but uh, it is. It's something I'm interested in for sure, yeah, and uh, as my knowledge of it is that it's it is learning, in one sense of the word learning we would use, and that it sort of is analyzing patterns, and creating new constructs from those patterns, and then using those constructs to analyze other things, um, and so it it might be considered intelligent by some cases. Um, you do you know what the Turing test is? No. Yeah, so the Turing test is... Did you ever see um, The Imitation Game, the movie Benedict Cumberbatch, I think, was in it? No. Um, yeah, so it's about Alan Turing, who is a um, mathematician who cracked the um, Nazi enigma machine in World War II. Which, oh, I've heard something about that. Yeah, which allowed okay. the Allies to decode yeah. Yeah, the yeah. Nazi messages. So he was very famous um, in sort of the genesis of computers, and he... Um, devised an idea, a test, to determine whether a computer was intelligent, which was on the basis of could you have a conversation with it and not be able to tell that it was a computer. So if you could have a conversation mm-hmm. with it and believe it was a human, then it was out, and that computer was intelligent. Um, and so many think that ChatGPT has passed the Turing test and is intelligent, um, I personally don't because to pass the Turing test, I mean, you would, um, depends on who's doing this evaluation, right? So like the Turing test is, you know, you have a conversation with it and you can't tell that it's a computer. Um, but who is having the conversation and what is the conversation about, right? And so that's an, an interesting question. Like if you talk to ChatGPT about uh, regular everyday things, yeah, you can't really tell it's a computer. But if you talk, get in depth with it, uh, which I've tried to do, this, you get in depth on um, topics like philosophy, and I, I can tell. It starts making mistakes. It starts saying things which are just blatantly false. And it says it incredibly confidently. Very mm-hmm. confident in this wrong well, thing yeah, that it says, okay. right? Because it's taking patterns and extrapolating them and putting it out there. And saying, nope, this is fact. And then you correct it and it goes, oh, whoops, okay, I guess I was wrong. And you go, well, how can you be wrong? And they go, I can't be wrong. Like it's a very, um, if you're an expert in a field or um, knowledgeable in a field and you ask it specific questions about that, it won't pass. Mm -hmm. But if you're asking it like day-to-day generic stuff, then sure. Um, Consciousness is another issue though. So... This idea of the Turing test, um, Turing, to his credit, uh, wrote in the paper, he put aside the issue of consciousness. And he said, I'm just talking about intelligence. Um, 
I won't, you know, that doesn't mean that it's conscious or it's not conscious. We won't, I won't address that here. Um, but a lot of people took intelligence to mean consciousness, especially people who have that sort of, like I was talking to you about before, behaviorist and functionalist view of consciousness, um, took that to mean conscious. But uh, I suppose I should mention the Chinese room thought experiment. So John Searle, who's a philosopher, um, he proposed an experiment in, or a thought, a thought experiment in a paper, I believe it was 1980, Minds Matter and something. I, I don't remember the, the paper's title, but um, he proposed a thought experiment of, that he called the Chinese Room Thought Experiment. And so he essentially said, suppose a thought experiment where you're inside of an enclosed room and inside the room you have a booklet with instructions which tells you when messages come through with Chinese characters on them, you don't speak Chinese, mm -hmm. with Chinese characters on them, with what characters, Chinese characters, you should write to respond with. And so, and it's this huge book that has all these different variations. And so someone who is not in on the experiment and doesn't know you're a non-Chinese speaker in the mm -hmm. room could write out a message in Chinese, put it in the room, wait for the reply, you get the message, you identify the characters, you look through the book, okay, these are the right characters I found that are on the message, the book tells me to reply with these characters. Mm -hmm. You then go and you reply, you copy those characters, you reply, and you put it out. The person on the other side, and suppose you get really good at this, you get really skilled at doing this quickly and efficiently, mm -hmm. and you can draw these characters very precisely. The person on the other side then will have no idea that you don't speak Chinese because they put in a message saying, Hello, how are you? You got it. You can't read it. But you know this character, this character, this character. You find it in the book. You find what you should write. You go and write it out. And you reply, I'm doing very well. How are you? But you have no idea that that's what you replied. And so the person who gets that would then go, Oh, well, what's your favorite color? You'd get it. And the book, which is infinitely big, okay. has that in it. It has every sentence you could have in Chinese. Okay. So every sentence yeah. you could ever have in Chinese, it has it. You find that sentence. Oh, okay. Yeah, favorite color. Yeah, yeah. okay, this. And then you write the colors. Uh, you write the, the characters, which describe what your favorite color is. Of course, you don't know any of this, what any of this means. You're just copying what you're told to from the book. Write it out, submit. Oh, yeah, oh, my favorite color is blue. Oh, this must. This is a Chinese-speaking person who's doing well today and his favorite color is blue. The person on the outside of the room has no idea that you're a non-Chinese speaker who's just following a set of rules. Mm -hmm. Yet, would you say that the person doing that understands Chinese? No. No, of course not. He doesn't understand Chinese. And so when Searle's point is to say that that person doesn't understand Chinese, well, the, what that person's doing, he's a human computer. All he's doing is taking inputs, indexing them to a set of rules, formulating an output based on the input in that set of rules, and then spitting it out, and doesn't understand any of it. And so his point is that by functioning that way, hmm. You don't actually understand any of that. And just like the computer doesn't understand 
any of it. So ChatGPT, using Searle's argument, ChatGPT doesn't understand anything that it's doing. It's just finding, program, finding patterns, indexing those patterns to its programming or the programming that it's constructed on top of its original programming, which told it to do that, and then um, generating an output based on the input and the rules of logic within the system. But it doesn't actually understand what it's doing. Just like John Searle doesn't understand Chinese. He's just copying what's in the rule book. Yeah. AI doesn't understand. When you say, you know, um, AI, explain what a milkshake is to me. And it goes, the milkshake is a drink consisting of milk, ice cream, or whatever answer it gives you. It doesn't actually understand what a milkshake is. It's just mm -hmm. taking your input of the word milkshake, indexing that to all of the patterns it can recognize with how milkshakes are described, and then spitting an output. Right? And so this is John Searle's thought experiment of the Chinese room. And so that is very influential to a lot of philosophers who consider it. Um, now, there's objections, but I think Searle has addressed most of those objections um, adequately. Um, and, and many philosophers take it as proof that, uh, in, that AI and computers simply cannot be conscious. They cannot understand. Because to, be, to understand something, you need more than the syntax of, oh, this means that. You need more than that. You, th this input, therefore that output. You need more than that. What you need is understanding that milkshake is this thing in the glass in front of me that tastes sweet and is brown because it's chocolate and has whipped cream on top and often comes with cherries. Like You don't have that un actual understanding if you're a computer that's just indexing the term milkshake to descriptions of milkshake and spitting it out. Even if you have a very complex process of, of what milkshake is, what those characters are, what the patterns you're looking for are, even if you could describe every fact about milkshakes in the world, just like that book had every sentence of Chinese you could ever utter, doesn't change the fact that the guy, the one manipulating the, the, the book, or in this case, the facts about milkshakes, doesn't actually understand what a milkshake is. So in, in philosophy, we call it philosophy of sign or semiotics, where you actually have to have like meaning in your, in your brain. You have to have, uh, in your mind, you have to have um, something, like when you see something in the world, it's not just like, oh, I understand facts about this. It's like you've actually, you see it, experience you understand it, and you have the thought of it in your mind mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. corresponds to the physical reality, right? The AI doesn't have that. You know, some people argue maybe if you gave the AI like artificial eyeballs and like feeling sensors, like maybe it could. Um, I'm not convinced by that, but it definitely, yeah. certainly in the form of ChatGPT, it doesn't. Because it doesn't, its views, uh, not views, its statements don't connect to the world. Yeah. They don't connect to the physical world. They're just inputs put through a system of rules leading to outputs. There's no understanding the same way that John Searle doesn't understand Chinese. Hmm. So, wow. yeah, in, in the philosophy, of AI, it's very complex. I just, like, touched the surface of it. It's very complex. There's a lot of different opinions and, and views on it. But um, it's definitely something, like, if you're interested in AI, getting into the philosophy of AI is really cool, really cool stuff because it's, like, 
you know, science fiction-esque, but it's also science fact in, in the world we're getting to. It's becoming a reality. And we're going to have computers that are far in excess of human capabilities. And some people are even pushing for, like, robot rights and, like, computer rights now at this point. Like, yeah, there's some well, really dangerous areas where people... fast. Yeah, they don't understand these distinctions. And they think that some people will think that, you know, maybe the robot should vote. And, you know, this is... I know it's, it sounds comical, but it's coming. If you look at, like, the cutting edge of, of certain progressive ethicists and such, um, there is there, there are these views out there. And... Um, you know, it's it's uh, it's not a dominant strand in culture yet, but I mean, a lot of these these grievance study type views that are current in culture now came from academia 10, 15 years ago, and you know, back then they weren't common. Now they're out in you know every Nike ad and and Budweiser ad and everything that you can find, right? But back you know 10 years ago maybe weren't. Well, what we have now in academia 10 years down the road when AI is a much bigger feature of everyday life, I think is going to be, there's going to be people expressing that view and trying to push for, you know, robot ro robot rights and robot voting and, um, you know, ethical th concerns. And, and it, it follows. Like, if you grant that it's conscious, all of that follows. But, um, well, some of it likely follows. But, uh, you know, it's not conscious. That's, and I think Searle has proved that. Um, or gone a long way towards proving it, um, at least to an extent. And and um, I, I haven't encountered... I have encountered objections to the view, um, but I haven't encountered any that are particularly convincing. And it's not clear that... To go back to Thomas Nagel and, and what is it like to be a bat, his paper, you know, there's something that it's like to be you, right? It's not clear that there is ever something that it's like to be ChatGPT, right? Like... Mm -hmm. ChatGPT, for all we know, and I think which is likely the case, you know, the lights are on, but no one's home. Like, th there's nothing that it's like to be. A, it doesn't have a subjective. Yeah. Right? It's just a computer program going from A to B, A to B, A to B, even in very complex ways that we can't understand. But that doesn't mean that there's actually anyone home. That doesn't mean that it has qualia. And so that's sort of... Um, Mm -hmm. An interesting distinction in philosophy of mind and, and in philosophy of AI um, that I think we're going to encounter a lot going forward in modern discourse. And you watch, in the next five, ten years, that's going to pick up a lot. There's going to be a lot of discussion around it. And I, I don't know, are you, do you know about the singularity? Have you ever heard that phrase? No. It's a phrase that basically, um, it's a, an expression for a projected point in history where AI reaches such a high capacity that we can no longer control it. And at that- Isn't it that capacity already? How you said like engineers can't- Well, they can control it still. They can't, um, they can't discern everything it's doing. So they can't, uh, they don't understand how any one decision is made, but they can still control the system. They can turn it off. They can go in and manipulate it and change it. learn that it might be turned off, so it's turn, it'll turn itself back on. Well, so I think a lot of them are are actually like disconnected from the net in a lot of ways. So like the uh, the for, as far as I know, the version that you get that you get access to isn't actually connected to the outside net. It was given a huge chunk of information, like terabyte upon terabyte of information. Um, 
from web pages, like hundreds of thousands or millions of web pages. It was given all of that information and then you are provided like a link directly to it, but it doesn't actually access the live web. So it can't escape. This is my understanding. Mm -hmm. It can't go and replicate itself elsewhere. Um, I believe that's a safeguard that's in place. But suppose, and, and when they update it, they bring it down and they update it, they add more information and then they put it back up, right? Or, you know, they might have keep a version of it up the whole time, but, you know, they'll have a version that's updated and then they bring that one live, right? Well, um, suppose in the future, AI becomes smart enough to bypass that safeguard. Oh, yeah, I'm sure it will. Right, and this is, um, this is a problem. So if you get to the point where... Um, it's an interesting sort of thought experiment on this. That it's like we have one of two outcomes must happen, right? Um, either technology will stop progressing, which is almost unthinkable because technology has been progressing for millennia, human technology. In fact, if we stopped progressing in technology, um, it would be almost like one of the worst things you could think of because the benefit of increased technology has been so obvious throughout time. But that's one option. We stop progressing technology. The other option is we keep progressing in technology until eventually we hit the point of the singularity. And that's an even more terrifying. Could be 10 years, could be 100 years, could be 1,000 years. But if we keep progressing in technology, even slowly, if we keep progressing eventually we will hit the singularity um, because eventually it will become so complex we can't control it. And that is, and the only way to stop that is to stop progressing in technology, which no one wants to do and is almost unheard of to even say that, to stop. If we told Google, no, just stop. Open AI, no, just stop. Just stop. And they'd be like, screw you, we're not going to do that. Then what are we going to do? We're going to roll in the tanks? To stop them? Okay, maybe, but China's not going to stop. Yeah. It's a big problem. It's a big problem because if we don't stop, and no one is stopping, so it's all full steam ahead, keep going, and because we're not stopping, eventually it's going to get so complex that it's out of our hands. That'd be very scary. Holy Yeah. Wow. And it might not be our lifetime. It might not even be in 200 years. It could be 1,000 years. But if we keep going, it'll happen. Which we will keep going. We will. Because no one's going to stop. So it will happen. So in the future... Well, like, you can't guarantee... Like, we could choose to stop, right? Like, everyone in the world... Like, this this is a bit of a pipe dream. But it could happen, right? Everyone in the world could get together and we could decide, Mm -hmm. okay, we're going to stop. Right, and okay. it'll be like dearmament, like nuclear dearmament, like same thing, and all the countries will monitor each and other. And that's when we come all to- and everyone that's when we come together. Maybe, like very, very like uh, optimistic view. Mm-hmm. But the other option, well, that doesn't happen. We keep going. Singularity eventually. So that's philosophy of AI. Enjoy that. <laughs> that's that is, an interesting way to, yeah, it's an interesting thing to get. A, I can send you a video about that as well. There's a, um, a philosopher, a, a podcaster I told you about, Sam Harris. Yeah. He, he did a, a TED Talk about that. Not too long, it's about I think, 13, 15 minutes mm-hmm. and sort of is a broad overview of this. And um, it's a good sort of wow. digestible 
intro to this. Okay, well, uh, before we wrap up this extremely long episode, which was <laughs> really awesome, um, I ask my guests all the time, what is their favorite book mm -hmm. and their favorite podcast? You've mentioned a lot of books throughout this podcast. <laughs> so I'll put you on the spot. Which one's your favorite? Yeah, well, okay, so for book, I mean, oh, man. It's a really hard thing to get for for the purposes of like for a good intro to philosophy, and I think where would be a really great starting point for people. It's always Plato's Republic, is a great start. Yeah, it's it's found it's very accessible, um, despite the fact that it was written uh, thousands of years ago because he wrote all in dialogues, and it's it's very um, non complex language. Dialogue. Dialogue. Yeah. So like uh, two characters speaking yeah. to each other in a conversation, yeah. and that's the style of almost all of Plato's writing. And um, it, it makes it very accessible for people to get in and sort of access some of these ideas, fundamental philosophical ideas. Mm -hmm. Do you think a conversation happened and he just wrote down the conversation? Well, the, so there's um, historical debate about that. A lot of the, the, he uses character, he uses people of the, the era in Athens in his dialogues. Um, so when he's writing them, these are real people that he's discussing. Now, whether the exact conversations happen that way, that's up for debate and a lot of it is I think some it's generally considered uh, and I, like I'm not an expert on this at all so I, I don't I could be wrong but my my understanding is that um, in the some of the earlier dialogues of Plato um, they might have represented more uh, like the true views of the people who said them and then in the later dialogues he's sort of using people as mouthpiece especially Socrates, Socrates who was his who, his teacher use him more as a mouthpiece for his views and so it's sort of like a device it's a you know a literary device to to make um make his point mm -hmm. but um nonetheless there it's it's very accessible and it contains a lot of the really fundamental the nuggets of of um, philosophical issues that we're still a lot of them we're still grappling with today so yeah Plato's Republic um, uh, there's a lot of other books you know any type of intro to philosophy textbook you pick up like just have a breeze through it like try if you look at um, Oxford University Press like very short introduction have you seen those books they're like about that big. They're they're quite small. Mm -hmm. um, you know, for podcasts, it's maybe not that big. It's yeah. like a few. You know, maybe six inches tall by four inches wide or whatever. And they're on different subjects. And uh -huh. so, if you pick up a philosophy one or anything within philosophy, metaphysics, epistemology, anything like that, um, there they provide good intros as well to sort of give you a broader understanding of the discipline. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, if you're gonna pick one work from one philosopher, you can't go wrong with Plato and the Republic. Yeah. So. Um, you know, one of our foundational uh, Western philosophers in, in our tradition. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a great intro point. As far as a podcast, um, you know, I recommend, like I said, Making Sense with, by Sam Harris. Mm -hmm. It's a good podcast. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So. Interesting. Well, thank you so much for coming on. This yeah. has been a very long but interesting podcast. At least I enjoyed it. Hopefully people out there enjoyed it. And, uh, yeah, I'll uh, add that link in the description for your website and cool. uh, yeah.